We are Missouri Farm Bureau Insurance, and we're for the people of Missouri. We're for brewmasters, stockbrokers, beauty queens, and truck drivers. Whatever you do, if you're a Missourian, we're for you. We are Missouri Farm Bureau Insurance, and we've got Missouri covered. Good week, it's another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. As always, I'm your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels back in the studio. Full three-hour show coming to you live from the Sportsbook out here in KCK with a lot of Chiefs to go into, of course. About the first two hours of our show tonight will be dedicated to your Kansas City Chiefs, who are now moving on to their third Super Bowl in the last four years after their 23-20 win over the Cincinnati Bengals in the AFC Championship game last Sunday at Arrowhead Stadium. So what we're going to do to open up the show today, pretty much just get a gauge on what Dylan's thinking back at the studio, what I've been thinking after this most recent win against Cincinnati, the injury report. Then at 7.30, we'll be joined by Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Arrowhead Report, get his thoughts on that and maybe a little bit of a preview into that Super Bowl matchup with the Philadelphia Eagles that will be taking place in Glendale next Sunday at 8 o'clock. We'll be joined in person by Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network. We'll talk all things Chiefs. Once again, a full hour of Joel Penfield. In the 9 o'clock hour, we'll save it for what else has been going on around the KC Metro. We'll talk KUK State. We'll talk some Royals. They bring back a familiar face to their rotation and Zach Granke. But as promised, I feel it is only necessary that the first two hours of the show tonight have to be dedicated to the Chiefs going back to their third Super Bowl in four years. Now, Here's kind of the, the main question I want to kick off the show with tonight. And, Dylan, I want to swing it to you very early on because I've been getting this question over and over again. I've seen it on Twitter. And, you know, I think it's easy to get caught up in the emotions of football. It's easy to get caught up in a big win. Of course, it was a very big win on Sunday against Cincinnati and especially to end that three-game slide to the Bengals. But is it enough? Uh, do you walk away from this season if you were to lose? Now, I know it's, you know, over a week and a half away. But if you were to lose to Philadelphia – in the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes would be one and two in his three Super Bowl appearances. Of course, flags fly forever. Uh, you would have that one Super Bowl ring. A lot of good quarterbacks never got any. Or a lot of good quarterbacks never even got to the Super Bowl. And Patrick Mahomes has already been so decorated in his first five years as a starter. But do you walk away from the 2023 season, 2022, 2023 season, and think of it maybe not as a failure, but left wanting more because I think it's pretty fitting today that with Tom Brady retiring, we can safely say that Tom Brady was one of the few, if not the only quarterback that maximized on nearly every opportunity he had in the Super Bowl. When you get seven rings, that's pretty much capitalizing. Now, you could criticize Tom Brady that he didn't really put up the numbers. He was carried by his defense. He was carried by his coaches. You know, you could give all those excuses, but seven rings is seven rings. And I am somebody that doesn't root for Tom Brady, never have, never will, probably won't even root for him in the broadcast booth. But there's no denying that he always capitalized on the opportunities that he was presented with. And Kansas City is one and one with Patrick Mahomes. Now, I think it's a lot different feeling if you get that second Super Bowl ring. Think about a lot of great quarterbacks out there that only got one. You know, Aaron Rodgers is in consideration of being one of the greatest of all time, but he only has one Super Bowl ring. If Patrick Mahomes gets his second in just five years as a starter in the NFL, now we're talking about a different level. It's still unlikely that he would catch Tom Brady in his seven, but I don't think Patrick Mahomes needs to catch Tom Brady to really be in that consideration of the greatest of all time. I think a great comparison is in the NBA with Bill Russell. Right, Bill Russell has all these rings, far more rings than MJ, has far more rings than LeBron, but there's very few people out there, if you were just walking on the street and you asked them who the greatest of all time was, they're not going to say Bill Russell. They're going to say Michael Jordan, or they're going to say LeBron James. So for me, 
looking at this team, looking at Patrick Mahomes, I think it's paramount for this season. I wouldn't consider it a season. I'm not going to say it's a lost season, a damaged season, nothing like that. But if the Chiefs fall again in the Super Bowl in back-to-back appearances, I don't... I would probably go as far to say that I'm just left wanting more. I'm not satisfied with that season because those 16 wins you have feel kind of hollow at this point. You made it all the way to the Super Bowl and then to lose to Philadelphia, I know you don't want to be greedy. I know you don't want to be spoiled. But for me personally, I think my take would be I'm not that satisfied. Uh, The 16 wins feel hollow. In a couple years, I may forget about that AFC Championship win against Cincinnati, just like in the way I've pretty much forgotten about that win against Buffalo in the COVID year when you went on to lose to Tampa Bay. I mean, there's so many things at stake, of course, there being the Super Bowl, but more so than anything, man, I feel like a lot more is on the line. I didn't think I'd be saying that one week later after we were talking about this Cincinnati game and saying how much was at stake, you know, the legacy game, uh, needing to beat Cincinnati for the first time in four tries to get to the Super Bowl again. You can't fall short against the Bengals team on your home turf for the second straight season, but I know you haven't faced Philly, you haven't faced Jalen Hurts since last year, and you want to be able to say, well, if you lose, you lost to a good team. You lost to the number one seed in the NFC. But I think right now in Kansas City, the common perception is that this team is just better than the Eagles, and maybe that's biased. Maybe that's just feeling too confident in yourself. The swagger's too high right now. But I think everybody feels confident going into this game that they should win. You know, They should be favored in this game. Vegas doesn't think so. But when you watch these teams play, you may think, oh, Philadelphia has a weak schedule. They kind of had a weak path to the Super Bowl. Kansas City had to go through Cincinnati. While, you know, Philadelphia got San Francisco with basically Christian McCaffrey as their quarterback. You know, just two different paths to the Super Bowl, but two teams that have 16 wins apiece. So, Dylan, after that whole spiel right now, what would your takeaway would be? And I don't want to be so negative, and I don't want to be a, a negative Nelly, bring everybody down here, but if the Chiefs were to lose, it doesn't matter if they're blown out or they lose in dramatic fashion, if that's an L to end the season, they do not win the last game of the season, what would your takeaway be on this 2022-2023 season? I, I wouldn't be disappointed. I would just kind of – I would feel like – if we made it this far, let's just finish the job. Like it shouldn't be the pinnacle of the season can't be beating the Bengals. Like last year, it felt like, like maybe the emotional dump from the bills game was what was in the second half of the Bengals game, along with Mahomes malfunctioning a little bit, but I just don't want an emotional dump in this game. And I feel like the super bowl prevents that. So I shouldn't even worry about it. And I don't know. I wouldn't be disappointed just because everyone thought we weren't going to do anything. I wouldn't be, happy but yeah I wouldn't be disappointed I think I think I'd be pretty proud of the fact that when everyone was gearing up like again there's another question going around would the Eagles be here without AJ Brown Mm -hmm. so I mean we traded away a receiver we didn't add one I mean the Bills added Stefan Diggs I think it was two years ago three years ago Um, you know the Dolphins obviously benefited from us trading Tyreek Hill and they had their best season in a long time and we just had the same season we've always had, actually better than last year without him. So I would, I, I don't think I'd be disappointed. And you did trade away a Hall of Fame wide receiver in Tyreek Hill, and you right. won 16 games, and Patrick Mahomes is likely to win his second MVP. So there are accolades to go around, and to feel good about what you accomplished, you can hang another banner for an AFC championship, you won your division again. Uh, there were bright spots of the season, and I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to take away what this team has already done. I just think when I look at a dynasty like New England, because I don't think you can start calling yourself a dynasty until you win that second. I think that's always kind of been the perception of you got to win that second. 
it puts you some in a different say, category. Some people say Go three. Ahead. Yeah, three is definitely where maybe I would say you can call yourself a dynasty. I think you can be in the rumblings, the rumors, uh, get in the talk of being a dynasty if you win that second, and especially two and four years, because that's what New England did for a long, long time. That's what Tom Brady did for a long, long time. And maybe, you know, it's not the right thing to do to compare your franchise to New England, because I do think straight up head-to-head, there's a lot of great Chiefs teams that would have beaten some of those Super Bowl-winning New England Patriots teams. But... I think when you get to the Super Bowl and you are starting to prove that you are a team that's going to be there every other year, I think it's pretty safe to say it at this point that without Tyreek Hill, the Chiefs prove that you know you take away a Hall of Fame receiver. You know who knows what this team would look like without Travis Kelsey. But down the road, with the way the Chiefs have been able to draft, assemble their defense, pick up some pieces, you know you can go through free agency, get a guy like Juju on a one-year deal, get MVS on a three-year deal, and you can continue to just be at the top of your conference. And the Chiefs make it look so easy. And getting to a Super Bowl is not simple. It just The Chiefs have made it look that way over the last five years. Since Patrick Mahomes took over as the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, the bare minimum as a Chiefs fan is watching your team host an AFC title game. That was nearly impossible for two decades here at Arrowhead Stadium. You just That, that wasn't a possibility. You'd look at good teams. You'd say, oh, this team could make a wild card spot, but they're typically getting bounced. Now all we know is AFC title game or bust. You know, if you fall short of that, it's considered a failure of a season. And I want to hammer the point that I don't think it's a failure of a season if the Chiefs lose next Sunday because you lost to a very good Philadelphia team, a a team that has nearly as good of a scoring offense as you. They have a better defense than you. Uh, They don't have the better quarterback. They may not have the better all-around weapons in this game. I think if I was to pair A.J. Brown to Travis Kelsey, different positions, but I think if I was to go the more elite pass catcher, I'm going with Travis Kelsey. A best defender, I think the Chiefs still have that guy. It's just more of a well-rounded group in Philadelphia than it is in Kansas City. I don't know, though. I just think it, I've been battling this this opinion on it for and about the last couple of days. You know, because it's just you You look back at the 2020 year. You look back at the COVID year. Yeah. And it was a, a 14-2 and two regular season. That they was, rested their I would starters. Agree, and, like, that was a disappointing yeah. finish, for sure. Like the Because of how they steamrolled and everybody. How just not winning, being the best team in football all year, it felt like. And then when you got to the Super Bowl, you were really banged up. And, you know, you can always allude to that. But the Chiefs lost to a very good Tampa Bay team. And you kind of look back at that season and go, there were bright spots. I enjoyed watching this team play. I enjoyed watching them get to 14 regular season wins and win two of their playoff games. They they won 16 in total. But when it came down to it, they didn't win the last game of the year. And I know this is kind of a, a funny comparison to use when we're talking football, but I love to quote Moneyball on my show. If you listen to my show all the way back back to last year, you'd understand that. You know, in Moneyball, they say, or Brad Pitt or Billy Bean says, nobody gives a bleep if you don't win the last game of the year. You could win 16, 17, 18 games. You could be on the verge of a perfect season. But if you don't win in that last game of the year, you know, people forget it a little bit. You're left wanting more. You're not as satisfied. I think that's a, you know, a no-brainer thing to say. If the Chiefs were to lose, I don't think the majority of fans would just say, oh, it's all fine, it's okay, we'll be back there next year, we'll be back there the year after that, because there's no guarantee. Right? Maybe you're just on a hot streak right now. You're in the prime, you're in the window, and there's no easy way to get back. I mean, the AFC is a gauntlet. The division is still going to be pretty tough. you got to battle with the Chargers. Hell, maybe the Broncos are better with Sean Payton. Maybe the Raiders catch on in a couple of years. So there's no guarantee that you get to the Super Bowl every single year. And I think most Chiefs fans understand that. You can have the confidence of it, but at the end of the day, you got to capitalize when you're there. And I think a lot of Chiefs fans would feel disappointed uh, if the Chiefs were 1-2 and two in their three Super Bowl appearances. 
because you know how good this team is. You know what it takes to get to that level, how much has to go right. I mean, this year, it was not a perfect year for Kansas City. Uh, They slipped up a couple of times. They lost to a bad Indianapolis team. They lost to Buffalo at home. Uh, they lost a few guys along the way defensively. They went through some early season struggles. You know, people were calling for Steve Spagnuolo's head. They weren't happy with the pass rush early on. Then it caught fire. Then it was the secondary that had a problem. Then it was the linebacking core. The special teams was a disaster. There's been some down parts to the year. There were some close wins. An overtime thriller against the Houston Texans, who were drafting second overall in the draft. Uh, you had two thrillers against Denver, a very bad Denver team. So there were times this year where they didn't look like a Super Bowl contending team. But now you look up, and there they are with Philly, the two teams with the best records, and going to be playing in Glendale for the Super Bowl. You just can't let seasons like this slip up. And no losing head-to-head to a really good team is not necessarily slipping up, but you're not satisfied. You're left wanting more. And that's why I think the pressure starting to mount a little bit, the anxiety, the fear of this game is starting to mount a little bit. Because once you get back there over and over and over again, there's an expectation. There's a different level of expectation. And I think in Kansas City, everybody's fully aware of that. You get your first one, right? Patrick Mahomes' first Super Bowl, he won it. You know, if Patrick Mahomes would have lost his first Super Bowl, I don't think that many people would have criticized him because it was his first. Then he gets to a second Super Bowl in it, second consecutive year, and gets hammered by Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. More so hammered by the, Tam- the Tampa Bay defense. That's where you can kind of chalk up that game. That's how you can summarize that game. And he faced some more criticism, right, that he wasn't very good because statistically in the first Super Bowl, he wasn't that great. And if you lose a third or a second time and a third appearance, now you're starting to have that, that weight on your shoulders again. That, man, maybe you can be a really good quarterback. You can be an MVP winning quarterback. But when it counts the most, you fall short in the Super Bowl. And that is a, a really unfair criticism. But you know how the NFL works. You know how certain quarterbacks are criticized. Aaron Rodgers was criticized for years because he couldn't win the big game. He couldn't win at home in the postseason. He fell short numerous times. Drew Brees had his criticisms. Ben Roethlisberger had his criticisms. The only quarterback that was never really criticized for winning in big-time games was Tom Brady, who just retired earlier today. But that's what it kind of got me thinking on this, this topic, this debate of, you know, what can you make of the Chiefs if they were to lose? Because everybody's still riding high about the AFC title win. Everybody's loving, you know, what happened at Arrowhead Stadium this last weekend. You won in the nail-biter, you beat the boogeyman or your boogeyman in the postseason, you beat him at your home field, you got to celebrate that, but now it's on to the next one. And you're facing a team that arguably is better than Cincinnati. They're more well-rounded than Cincinnati. They're healthier than Cincinnati. And I just think if you can cap off this year with a Super Bowl, I think it means more than the first one. And the first one came after 50 years of not winning a Super Bowl. But the way that you would be able to go about it this year, being doubted all season long, you trade the way Tyreek Hill, it's a soft rebuild. You know, you're not going to win your division. You're not better than Denver. You're not better than the Chargers. Hell, you may be the worst team in your division. Who knows what Patrick Mahomes looks like without Tyreek Hill? According to yeah, it won't make Bart the playoffs. I mean, everybody was giving those criticisms, and if you were to find a way to cap off this season with a 17-win season, which I believe would be the most in franchise history, a single season winning 17 games, going 17-3, and three, Patrick Mahomes winning an MVP, you win a Super Bowl, it'd be a second Super Bowl in five years. I mean, that just to me feels like one of the best accomplishments you could have in one singular season. And then you're getting the praise from everybody, which isn't everything, right? If you're a top dog, everybody's going to try to bring you down. People want to see you fail. It's why for years people always called for Tom Brady's dynasty to end. It was 2014, 15, 16, 17. Oh, this is the last time we'll see Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. This is the last time we'll see him compete for an MVP award. Last time we'll see him at the top of the league. I mean, I can remember all those conversations. And not saying that the Chiefs would be immune to it, but... 
I think in Kansas City you would go be in the conversation of, is this the greatest run we've seen in the five-year stretch of just pure play? Because even back when New England was winning Super Bowls early with Tom Brady, Tom Brady wasn't putting up the numbers Patrick Mahomes has. I mean, you are legitimately talking about one of the most dominant quarterbacks, one of the most dominant teams we had seen in the five-year stretch. Now you have to build on that. You have to continue with that. But if you lose this game against Philly, you can bring up all you want about the stats, the MVP awards, the division championships, the, the playoff wins. I get it. But the common knock would be that you can't win in the Super Bowl. You won one, but you beat Jimmy Garoppolo. Then you played Tom Brady and Jalen Hurts, two guys, one of them being an MVP winner, one of them being considered the greatest of all time, and one that was also an MVP consideration early on this year. And they're not saying that Patrick Mahomes is worse quarterbacks than them, but we all know how the national media talks, the knocks, the criticisms that you get. That's why I think there's so much at stake, and there's always going to be a lot at stake when the Kansas City Chiefs are playing any opponent. To me, though, I just, I've just i sort of talked myself into this being a bigger Super Bowl, if not the biggest Super Bowl that Kansas City's played in of the three. Because you're getting Philly, you're getting the number one seed, you're getting the, the quote-unquote best team you're healthy. on the NFC side. Go ahead, Dylan. Your, your line's healthier, so there's not that fallback. There's no excuse. Yeah, you are pretty much healthy. I think offensive line-wise, you're healthy on the defensive side for the most part. you got some guys that are... Banged up, but Nicked everyone up. does. Everyone's yeah, everybody's banged at up this at this point. point it's of the not season. like people are out, out like we had with the Achilles to Eric Fisher mm-hmm. and Mitchell Schwartz with his back injury exactly. just never returned. You know, I could get summing up that loss to just a ravaged offensive line, but you still lost the game, and that's what people remember when it's all said and done. There's no excuse this time around, and I know I'm sounding like I'm this big critic. You know, I'm being I know, very I feel negative. Like I'm the positive one. <laughs> yeah. I'm being very negative about a team that just appeared or is going to appear in their third Super Bowl in four years. Like, there's nothing to be negative I about think on that side. You're not negative. You have high expectations, which is yes. valid. And maybe that's the question I'm trying to get across. Is it okay? Is it We're here sufficient now, to at be. At this point, like, we are. Remember when Patriots fans used to say, wake us up when the AFC championship's yes. on? Don't mm-hmm. you feel like that a little bit now? Oh, I do, yeah. I mean, you could look at losses in the regular season and go, all right, all yeah, right, you may yeah. lose the Bills in week six, but right. they can hang a banner. We really don't care because we know we're going to be there in the end, and our expectation is reaching the Super Bowl. And I just think when you have all these years of such great success, you got to capitalize. you got to end those years with Super Bowl wins and – it's a, it's a territory the Chiefs have never been in. This franchise has absolutely never come close to. You know, you, you've never – in fact, there's been very few teams in NFL history that have had this run of terror over their own conference over the last five years. I mean, hosting five consecutive AFC title games, getting to three of four Super Bowls, only New England comes to mind of a team in the last 20, 30 years that have really been able to do that. I know the Steelers were kind of there a couple of years. 70s. 70s. Yeah, you can go back to the 70s and 60s, so, 70s, and 80s. There were dominant teams. I've I've always compared this team to the 80s 49ers, and it would actually line mm-hmm. up exactly perfect if they did win the Super Uh It might be one year off if they win the Super Bowl this year because yeah. the Niners won it in 81 for the first time. Then Joe Montana went back in 84 and won it for the second time three years later after missing the playoffs, then losing in the uh, NFC Championship in 83. And I just think that that's – if we are that, like if we're the 49ers and Patrick Mahomes breaks all the records and all he gets is four rings like Montana had, I think he's still in the debate like Russell versus Jordan with Brady because yeah. he is the driving force of all of these. And I agree with you. He, I really want them to win for all the reasons you're saying. I am positive. I feel like we got a little, you know, an, another doubted game where we're the underdogs. Also, low key, I, I'm. I, 
said this earlier on the home stretch, and I feel like this could be a little bit of a factor. Philly, even though it's cordial, Jack, and I agree that they like each other and it's okay, they said Andy Reid wasn't, you know, for them anymore. They said we want to go a different direction, and Andy had to come here. because. And I think that that can galvanize the locker room of players that love Andy Reid. And I feel Mm -hmm. like that is an underlying, like, storyline that could be a part of this game. And I feel like that – there's there's a lot of things going in our favor that it's hard to be positive about because you are nervous, and I feel like it's like, man, we really – it would be huge to win this game. So I feel – I, you're not being negative. I understand where you're coming from completely. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not to take away – and, of course, there are going to be people that – you know, misconstrue my words and say, wow, there, there's, you know, Jack on the radio saying he's not satisfied with a 16-win season. Right. If they lose in the Super Bowl, right, it's just a disastrous year. I'm not saying that at all. No. I'm saying that you will sit there on Sunday night, if it is a loss, and go, man, I kind of feel like I'm not that satisfied with this year. Now you get over it and you'll say, you know what, you look back and enjoyed a lot of what happened that year, a lot of thrilling moments. Patrick Mahomes winning an MVP in his first year without Tyreek Hill. I get all those accolades are all fine and dandy. But think about but this. But as the franchise, go but ahead. Like, think about this, and you're, um, this is like to your point. Like, do we really, like, we say 13 seconds, but mm-hmm. boy, it would have felt a whole lot better if we would have beat the if Bengals won and won it all. Because mm-hmm. now it's like when you say that, you think, then, well, what happened next week? Oh, we, we lost. So it's you like, lost. I agree with you on the Bengals thing. It's like, it doesn't feel like you drive the stake through the Bengals unless you finish the job. Like, go and win it and put two in front of Joe Burrow so that the conversations, hey, if you want to come to the table and have a Joe Burrow, Patrick, or anyone Patrick Mahomes conversation, we're going to need two rings minimum for the rings crowd. And you're going to need two MVPs for the eye test crowd. I mean, it's just, it, it does put a massive gap between him and the field, like a tiger gap. Well, you think about, you know, winning one Super Bowl is, is certainly a hell of an achievement. But think about, yeah. you know, some quarterbacks in NFL history that have kind of walked into a Super Bowl. Nick Foles comes to mind in Philadelphia. Like, Nick Foles has one Super Bowl ring, and you can never take that away from him. You know, Eli Manning I thought was a good quarterback, but also wasn't like Peyton. You know, wasn't like Tom Brady. Wasn't like Drew Brees. He had a couple of Super Bowl rings. And, you know, it's just, it puts you in a different category because nobody can ever take that from you. And when you're debating quarterbacks, and maybe that's the – the competitive person in me, when I watch Patrick Mahomes play, he plays for the city that you're hosting a radio show, and you want him to see you want to see him be the best. You don't want people comparing Josh Allen to him. You don't want people comparing Joe Burrow to him. And if the Kansas City Chiefs win next Sunday, now to flip it here, and they win on Sunday against Philly, and he's got two MVPs and two Super Bowl wins, and he's never lost in his division, who can you compare him to? I mean, I mean who could you actually go into the season and say, you know, this guy is better than Patrick Mahomes. He wouldn't have the numbers. He wouldn't have the Super Bowl rings. And I think that's what I'm wanting to see more than anything else. Yeah, I am a a Chiefs fan. I love covering this team. I love talking about this team. But when you're watching something that's greatness, you're watching greatness here in your own city, you want to see them achieve it. And not the unrealistic goal of getting eight Super Bowl rings. I, I don't think that's likely because when you look at how the conference is now compared to where it was 20 years ago, there's a lot better quarterbacks, a lot tougher divisions there's a lot tougher situations you know Patrick Mahomes isn't going to win the AFC West every single year you know maybe 10 years down the line there's some stud quarterback in Denver you know it's just it's it's one of those incredible type of things you're watching with Patrick Mahomes going for a second Super Bowl ring a second MVP and if you can cap that off next Sunday I mean you're starting to put him in the conversation of 
being the greatest of all time next to Tom Brady. Now, I think you need a couple more to get in that conversation, but still something to consider, something to watch as the Chiefs take on the Eagles next Sunday night at 5.30 on Fox. Let's take our first break of the show. When we come back, we'll be joined by Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Inside the Chiefs. That's next on Sports Radio 810 WHB. on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, coming to you live from the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Dylan Michaels back in the studio. We're spending the first two hours of our show tonight just strictly talking Chiefs football as they won the AFC for the third time in the last four years heading to Glendale to take on the Philadelphia Eagles in this year's Super Bowl. That will take place next Sunday at 5.30 on Fox. We're going to go to the phone lines and talk with Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report, Jordan Foote. Jordan, thanks for taking the time to come on the show tonight. Yeah, Jack, man, I'm I'm glad to talk with you, and we have some good stuff to talk about, man. We could have been chatting off-season strategy and kind of uh, early NFL draft talk, and I think everybody would much rather listen to a little bit of Super Bowl back and forth than, than the former. Certainly, it would have been more of a depressing conversation if we were already talking about offseason moves and where the Chiefs would go next. But fortunately, we are going to be previewing a little bit of that game next Sunday night against Philadelphia. But to kick off the show tonight, Jordan, Dylan and I were kicking around the idea of what would happen if the Chiefs were to lose on Sunday to Philadelphia. What would your takeaway be on the 2022-2023 season? Would it be a disappointment? Would it be a failure? Would you be left wanting more? Or would you be able to be positive on this end and go, you know what, you still won 16 games, you made it to the Super Bowl, it's hard to win the Super Bowl, I'm still satisfied with how things went? I think everybody should have a reason to be happy and say heading into the year, not many people expected the Chiefs to be in the Super Bowl. Fewer people expected them to win the Super Bowl. Not everyone thought they'd win the division, let alone the divisional round, let alone the AFC championship game. So the Chiefs have already gone above most people's expectations for this year. With that said, if they lose the Super Bowl, they will have failed at their own bar. They they wouldn't have met their own expectations. So I think if we're looking at it that way, it's technically a disappointment of a season or a failure of a disappointment or a failure of a season rather because they didn't win the Super Bowl. And every season they have Patrick Mahomes, they should be fighting for a legitimate shot to win the Super Bowl. At the same time, though, there's a lot of variance in the playoffs. There's a lot of variance in the regular season. It's hard to win a playoff game, let alone multiple, let alone a Super Bowl. So it's improbable to do what they did and they've overachieved. I think all things considered now next year, it's got to be Super Bowl or bust, and I think truthfully it probably is every year. They have Mahomes in his prime with this type of uh, flexibility of this GM and this head coach. So grand scheme, it would be a failure if they don't win the Super Bowl. But then you can break it down and say, well, at the end of the day, they really did go farther than a lot of people thought. Jordan, where do you stand on 
the greatest of all time? Of course, I'm asking this question because Tom Brady retired today, at least so we think. He said he's retiring for good, so maybe we can take his word for it this time around. But he won seven Super Bowls. He has seven rings that he can put on both hands, right? And Patrick Mahomes only has one right now. Does Patrick Mahomes have to win a couple of more? Not Maybe not get to seven, but to get to maybe three or four to get that title of greatest of all time? Or is that impossible to achieve because he will never catch Brady? I think he's going to have the numbers that surpass Brady, but maybe not the winning totals that Brady has. Yeah, I, I don't think it's impossible. Um, I, I do think he has. And you'll, there are people out there right now that think Mahomes is the best ever. Now, he has started mm-hmm. off the best ever on that trajectory, so... If he plays, let's say, 18 seasons or even if he gets to 20 seasons, no one needs him to play until he's 45. Um, if he goes that long and continues playing well, and, you know, Andy Reid won't be his coach forever, Brett Beach may not be his GM forever, Travis Kelsey's not going to be there forever. Like, there's a finite amount of time there's a shelf life on all of those guys. But if he can keep winning and keep winning at a high level in the regular season and the playoffs, he's going to climb up the board. Like, I think... Brady, in terms of just overall GOAT, when you consider um, the, the gap between... So everyone wants the accomplishments, and quarterback wins is not a great way to, to go about it. But when you win seven Super Bowls, that's ridiculous. I, I don't care you know, how much help you've had any of that. It's so hard to win one. That deserves a ton. And I think it was uh, Mike Francesa, I believe it was him today, that brought up Peyton Manning, the best regular season quarterback, and Joe Montana, the best Super Bowl quarterback. Like, you could make those arguments. The gap isn't big enough to where I think it can strip Brady of the GOAT title. I really don't think there's a huge argument there. Now, then you get into who's the best, who's the most talented, who is the most efficient. Aaron Rodgers up until, you know, the last couple playoff chokes, I think, had a conversation there. Mahomes has a conversation there. Um, Dan Marino, Peyton Manning. And again, like a Joe Montana or a Drew Brees. So the GOAT is Tom Brady. The best, I think, is still probably Tom Brady. By the time it's all said and done, Patrick Mahomes is going to be top 10 if he isn't already. Um, He's probably going to be top five, probably going to be top three. Then you start getting into ring talk and, and context and all that good stuff. And when you look at the defenses he's had, um, some of the stuff he's had to face, playing through injuries, all that good stuff, if he wins, let's say – four Super Bowls, mm-hmm. I think, with the stats, that would make him the GOAT still. Um, if he wins three, I think it's still a conversation. And the fact that he's on the verge of possibly having two at the age of 27 on top of everything else is freaking ridiculous. We're talking with Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report, Jordan Foote. Uh, looking at this last draft class, I don't want to say it's the best that Brett Veach has ever had, or maybe the Chiefs have ever had, because I think anytime you drafted Patrick Mahomes, you kind of have to give that title to the best draft because you got your franchise quarterback and potentially a future Hall of Famer. But was it the most well-rounded draft maybe the Chiefs have ever had with getting this many impact starters that played so well in that AFC Championship win against Cincinnati? What, we lose Jordan? You still there? Oh, yeah, we got you now here. Okay, that was weird. Um, anyway, sorry about that. I think it's got to be the best, right? You look at 2018, Brett Beach, <laughs> he didn't exactly get off to the best start. That was what Breland Speaks. He it had was. Harry, um, Armani Watts. Like, he just didn't have many good players then. The next year, he had Hardman, Thornhill, Saunders, Rashad Fenton. Like, he got some decent starters out of that draft. And then you had 
oh, there's a first-round pick, and then it turns out to be Clyde Edwards-Alaire. Um, but you also get Legarius Sneed, Mike Dana. So he has been improving. You get the last season. He gets Nick Bolton. He gets Creed Humphrey. He gets Noah Gray. He gets Trey Smith. So there's still good value. But this year, it's got to be the best. You've got a potential blue-chip player in Trent McDuffie. You've got a long-term starter, at the very least, in George Karloftis. I think you still have a long-term starter in Sky Moore. I think you could have a long-term starter in Brian Cook. Then you've got Jalen Watson, who looks to be the real deal. You've got Isaiah Pacheco, who looks to be mostly the real deal. And you've got Josh Williams, who also has shown some promise, although the jury is still out. So that's without mentioning Nazee Johnson, who could be a valuable special teamer, without mentioning Darian Kennard, who at right now is depth. No one knows with him long-term. And Leo Chanel, who's the athletic specimen. So it was one hell of a draft class. Um, the only way you make that Terry Hill trade and have it actually work out is either divine intervention, Mahomes intervention, or the draft picks actually panning out. And right now they're panning out. I don't see how they get worse. Um, you can't have everyone go through a sophomore slump. So I think all things considered, from top to bottom, this has to be you know pretty far and away his best draft class so far. Did Marquez Valdez-Scantling earn every penny in his contract with his performance last Sunday night? It's got to be, I think. And it's kind of a, uh, a playoff Sammy type deal where, you know, he, <laughs> he he does some stuff and he's not always the best. And he's been more available than Sammy Watkins has. Um, but if you do something big in that moment, like Chris Jones, it's the same thing with him. He earned pretty much every penny of whatever contract he's going to mm-hmm. get with that AFC championship game performance. And Marcus Valdez-Scantling, he wasn't a bad receiver this year. He definitely had his ups and downs. There was a little bit of a... Demarcus Robinson in him, so to speak. But I think he did earn it. Remains to be seen if he's there long term. I think with the uncertainty with Juju and even Sky Moore right now and Hardman potentially walking out the door, they probably would have leaned to keep him just because they have the flexibility. Um, but in terms of avoiding being the uh, first offseason cut everybody makes, I think right off the bat, he definitely earned that. And I think he, uh, earned avoiding you know some of the scrutiny and i think most of that contract if not all of it one of the things that maybe has surprised me the most about this postseason run if you wanted to say postseason run is two games i'm fine with that but i thought that jarek mckinnon would have a large large role in the chiefs winning these two games but just simply because of how he was playing toward the end of the regular season but is there anything we can chalk it up to as to why jarek mckinnon hasn't been as involved is it more so that pacheco was just sort of taking control of that number one spot or are they just maybe not using him as much as they'd like to based off the defensive scheme they're facing? Yeah, I think scheme always plays a massive role in it. Um, and he never really was, and he ran the ball 11 times against Jacksonville, which I had no clue. I just had to look that up because I definitely would not have guessed that. Um, but then four times against uh, Cincinnati, and he didn't get a target against Jacksonville, which is really weird. So you would think – like they flashed in the regular season, like you mentioned. It'd be Isaiah Pacheco uh, getting the bulk of the carries, which he's still getting plenty, but it'd be Jerick McKinnon almost exclusively getting the targets in the receiving game. We saw Pacheco get a little bit involved last week, made something good happen with the ball in his hands. I thought they had a pretty clear uh, identity, so to speak, at running back, and I think they still do. It's obviously a small sample size with two different games going two different ways. 
so to speak. I think the Super Bowl, you're going to see Jarek McKinnon have a better game, probably his best of the postseason. It's hard to do worse than four carries for one yard or 11 for 25. But overall, he's going to catch a couple passes. He could be the guy that swings like a uh, Damian Williams-type play. Not obviously the touchdown to seal it, but maybe a big play in the first quarter, the second quarter, even the third or fourth where he does pitch in. So I, I don't think it's a indictment on Jarek McKinnon quite yet. I think he is mostly healthy after he was dinged up. I think a couple weeks off is going to help him. Um, the Chiefs, it's matchup dependent. I think Philly's run defense, as good as their pass defense is, that's going to present some opportunities to run the ball. Then maybe you open up the stream game, especially if Mahomes is a little hobbled. So it's definitely a combination of things, but I wouldn't be too worried about McKinnon just yet. We're talking to Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report, Jordan Foote. Uh, Jordan, should we all feel like fools now for questioning the Chiefs' kicking game, for wanting Harrison Butker cut midseason because he was missing extra points and missing you know, kicks in crunch time moments? Should we all feel like fools done because at the end of the day, he was always going to pull through in the postseason? I, I don't know, man. He definitely he said week, whatever it was, 12, 13, 14, it could have been even a little bit later, he wasn't thinking he'd be 100% again this season. And part of it was the holding thing, holding gate, hashtag holding gate. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It seems like that after the Denver game, Harrison Bucker four for four on extra points against the Raiders, then three for three and two for two. And he is six for six on his last six field goal attempts. Now he's had, he had a seven for seven streak earlier in the year in weeks 11 and 12. And then he had a couple decent games after that down the stretch. So he may not be all the way back, but with every week that is further removed from, he went 0 for 1 in week 17, he went 1 for 2 in week 15, he went 1 for 2 in week 13. I think he is mostly back. I'm not sure the range is all the way there, and part of that could be the conditions he played in. You're basically kicking a rock instead of a football when it's that cold. Um, the Super Bowl, that's going to be telling. Like, I'm going to be watching for the pregame, hey, here's Harrison Bucker's range. Is it 55? Is it 60? Is it 50 again? That is going to say how injured he is, and I think that will kind of uh, correspond with is he all the way back or is he just 90% back. With that said, though, 90% Harrison Bucker, like 90% of last year's Bucker, still one of the best kickers in the NFL probably. And speaking of special teams, you know, it kind of almost felt like a Disney movie. It didn't feel real that it was Sky Moore maybe making the most impactful play of that game on Sunday. And it came after a season in which he muffed three punts. People didn't want him on the field anymore, certainly not returning punts. But there he is with the game on the line. No, he muffs one more punt. The Chiefs season's over. And not only does he catch the punt, and you could bring up the controversial block in the back or lack thereof, a call on that, but Sky Moore ran between blocks, had a near 30-yard return that set the Chiefs up nicely around midfield, and then a couple plays later, as we all know, uh, including the 15-yard penalty or the late hit out of bounds, they kicked the game-winning field goal. But does that kick alone? Because we saw Kadarius Toney back there. I'm sure we could see Harbin back there. We've seen Sky Moore back there. Did that return give Dave Tobe the confidence again to make in the full-time punt returner, or maybe was that just a decision in the moment? I think a little bit of both. Um, I think up until that point, he was just forced in because Tony was hurt and Hardman was hurt, and they didn't really have another guy. I know that Trent McDuffie, I think, had a little bit of return experience in college at Washington. Um, but Sky Moore had, Andy Reid mentioned it earlier in the week um, on Monday, getting him to strictly worry about being a receiver for a little bit, getting his mind off of it, 
with that said, though, you're throwing this guy out there with essentially the playoffs and the season on the line who hasn't done well at that role all year. That takes some uh, massive cojones to do on, on Reed's part or Tobe's part and Sky Moore's part to go out there and execute and not just call a fair catch and not just say, hey, I want to get this ball without fumbling it so the offense can go to work. Um, I was very surprised to see him back there even with the injuries, and I was even more surprised to see him field the ball and then even more surprised to see him field it well and get a good return out of it. And I, I wish I could credit um, who crafted the tweet earlier this week. It boosted their win probability by like 12%. It went from mm-hmm. like 59 to 71, and then the uh, Mahomes run boosted it another 8 or 9. It was a monumental play by a player who's had a rough year. I mean, he just never got involved on offense the way people expected. Um, but I think Andy Reid is the king of, if you make a mistake, we're going to go back to you. You're not really going to be in the doghouse if you're a young player, at least. And Dave Tobe may not have quite that philosophy, but in the biggest moment, it kind of showed. Like, if you're the Chiefs guy and they want you to do something, they're going to keep trying you until they exhaust every option. And apparently, they didn't feel like they were done with Sky Moore at Pumper Turner. Now let's talk about that run that Patrick Mahomes had, the late hit out of bounds on Joseph Asai, uh, which set up the Chiefs to kick the game-winning field goal and move on to their third Super Bowl in four years. Is there really a debate? I mean, we've been talking about it all week now, whether they should change the rules once again because the Chiefs benefited from those rules. I mean, I feel like if you see that play a hundred times over, a hundred times it is called a penalty, unless you can convince me otherwise, Jordan. No, it was ridiculous. And I, I thought it wasn't the... Uh, cleanest officiated game and I think both sides had reasons to be irritated but in that scenario you can't even make it close like don't give them the opportunity to throw that flag either you know it's easy for us to say because we're not playing out there and running full speed fall down or don't reach out or just run a, a take a different path into a coach or something I mean I hate to say but like go anywhere else but at the quarterback and have it be an incidental contact thing but it's not like Mahomes was blatantly flopping on purpose, and if he was, then kudos to him. But Osai, wrong place at the wrong time, I think, and just a mental error. I think he was closer to, you know, further off. And I think Shane Dennis said this the other day when I chatted with him, like the, the white on the bench and the white on the field or the green, you know, whatever. It wasn't very close. Um, I, I don't think you can pull a still screenshot and say, oh, well, the refs messed up on that one because – in any other universe besides one where the rule has changed and it shouldn't be, that's definitely a penalty. We're talking with Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report, Jordan Foote. Jordan, last couple questions for you here. Now let's look ahead to next Sunday's matchup with the Philadelphia Eagles. Eagles right now about a two-point favorite over Kansas City. What's your initial pulse on this game? Two great scoring offenses. I'd give the edge on defense to Philadelphia. They've got... Uh, probably a better pass rush, a more well-rounded pass rush than Kansas City, but I think Kansas City has the better quarterback in this game. I think they've got the best defensive player in Chris Jones. But what would your thoughts be going into this game right now? Should this be a game where Kansas City is favored? Is Vegas correct in the Eagles being the better team? Where do you stand right now? The Eagles have such a good team. man. Not only Jalen Hurts, not only Miles Sanders, they can run the ball. A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, one of the better wide receiver duos. Zach Paschal is effective. Um, Dallas Goddard gets the job done. They have a quality interior offensive line. Defensively, the amount of hell they can unleash on an opposing quarterback, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, Javon Hargrave, Josh Sweat, Robert Quinn, 
Linville Joseph, Jordan Davis. Uh, I think they have Indomitian Sue somewhere in there still. Like, it's absolutely. Then you have Hassan Reddick, who is really, really, really mm-hmm. performing this year. Then in the secondary, they've got uh, Gardner Johnson, I believe, at safety, and then Bradbury and Slay is the, the cornerback duo. Defensively, they have just about everything it takes to slow down the Chiefs, if that's possible completely. Um, and offensively, they have enough to where they're going to put up points. Now, with that said, man, they didn't play a lot of good quarterbacks. Like I saw a tweet earlier today, the best quarterback by QBR that they faced this year was Jared Goff. And they played the Vikings, so they had Kirk Cousins, but you've got Washington in there. You've got an Arizona game. You've got Pittsburgh, Houston, Washington again, Indy, uh, Tennessee, the Giants, the Bears, New Orleans, when they didn't really have anything going on. So it's not like they played a murderer's road type of schedule. It really wasn't very impressive this year. You can only play who's on the schedule, so they deserve credit for that. Um, The last thought, though, the Chiefs have been there before, and I don't know what historically the data says about teams that are going against like a first-time matchup or whatever with a new quarterback and a new coach and all that good stuff. But I think, personally, there's value in knowing when you're going to be prepped and what to prep and what it's going to be like when you get down there. And Andy Reid talked about it. They want to get the base install of the game plan done, then go down there, have a little fun, let the distractions set in, but still be really laser-focused. Philly doesn't really know what that's like right now. And they have the Jason Kelseys of the world who have been there, but Jalen Hurts hasn't been there. Nick Sirianni with this current team, he hasn't been there. Like, it's just different. So I think I don't really have an inkling either way of who should be favored. I could absolutely see either team winning it. I don't think it's going to be a blowout either way. Um, So something like Chiefs minus one and a half or even Philly, you know, minus one and a half, two and a half, anything is fine because they're both really good teams. But I might side with the uh, experience in the game over the high-end talent that Philly has. Now, I understand Philly's got, you know, just as good of a record as Kansas City, and you could say, by record, they are the best team the Chiefs have faced this year. But I want to ask you a different question. Is this the toughest matchup for the Chiefs this year? Because I feel like Cincinnati might have been a tougher matchup with the offense they possessed and their defensive line. Maybe say Buffalo is a tougher matchup. Is Philly the toughest matchup just on the field? You put you know names against names there, the schemes that they face, the quarterback they face. Is this the toughest team they've gone against all year long? No, the the Chiefs just got through the toughest matchup, I think, and their boogeyman. Now, Philly could turn out to be their boogeyman, but they played, I believe, was last year, and it wasn't anything too crazy. The Chiefs' uh, defense was kind of going through some, not turmoil, but there was a lot of miscommunication. I remember a rep where Anthony Hitchens was, like, screaming at Juan Thornhill to get in place or vice versa. They they just weren't communicating well. Um, Two different teams since then. It's got to be Cincy, right? Just with the history and playing all those four close games and Joe Burrow being so precise and usually not too, not having the moment be too big for him most of the time. Um, we don't know yet. There's just something in my gut keeping me from fully buying into the Eagles. And obviously if they win the Super Bowl, I'd have to. And I really like this story. Um, but I think the Chiefs just got through their biggest test. Now, Philly could be... 99% of that, and if the Chiefs don't play the game they played last week, maybe they do end up losing, but I think the toughest straight up, we're going to match up and play against you and, and be familiar, I think that was Cincinnati. Alright, Jordan, thanks so much as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Yep, take care, buddy. Thank you. There goes Jordan Foote, Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report, of course, giving us a great rundown of that AFC Championship game 
and of course a little look into that Super Bowl matchup against the Philadelphia Eagles. Thought it was the interesting point there, and I wanted to make sure I asked that question in the right way of Cincinnati being the tougher matchup, maybe not the best all-around team record-wise because you look at you know a team like Philly, 16-3, and they steamrolled their way through the postseason, but Cincinnati was the team that maybe had the toughest matchup against you. Dylan, let me get your thoughts before we go to break. Would you consider Cincinnati the best team, the toughest matchup for the Chiefs they've faced all year, or are you going to go with Philly here with their 16-3 and record? That's a really good like point, and I – I, like psychologically, you would have an argument, or the argument is actually easy. It is Cincinnati, but I mean, it's they're very similar. And actually, the Eagles have a healthy offensive line and a stacked defensive line. So I would say that Philly is the better overall team. But I think the good news is we don't they don't have like a psychological advantage like the Bengals may have had. If they won that game, they they had a little bit of one, and they would have definitely had one if they won that game. So that's a bit of a psychological edge that you think you have to win, so that you, you know, don't basically go into the off season with everyone saying you were owned by a single team. Um, so I'd say Eagles are better, like on the football field, but mentally, I feel like the Bengals are the biggest hurdle. Yeah, and I think you do have the factor in that mental approach to it, which is why they would have been the tougher matchup. You went into that game, you know, hearing the trash talk all week long, but also knowing that they were entitled uh, to trash talk. They'd beaten you three times in a row. Philly, you beat last year, but a completely different Philly team. You know, they didn't have A.J. Brown. Jalen Jalen Hurts was in really his first year as starter of the Philadelphia Eagles. That Eagles team only won eight games or nine games last year and then got thumped by Tampa Bay in the wild card round. Now you have a Philly team that's more well-rounded. They have a better running game. They've got a trio of running backs you're going to have to defend. And Miles Sanders, Kenneth Gainwell, and Boston Scott. Uh, you know, you got a tight end defending Dallas Goddard. you got two receivers like A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith to worry about. What I am curious to see, though, with this Philly offense is how they will attack Kansas City. And the way they attacked the 49ers, it was a lot of underneath stuff. And we talked all week long in previewing this, the Chiefs-Cincinnati game that it was all right if Patrick Mahomes went underneath if the Bengals were to drop eight. But they sort of just slowly picked apart uh, the 49ers' defense. Now it's a little bit different in how you can operate your offense when you know the other side's not going to score. And, of course, with Brock Purdy you know, tearing his UCL, the Eagles could kind of – take an approach of more comfortability because they knew Josh Johnson wasn't driving down the field and Christian McCaffrey wasn't going to be throwing passes. So you can have a different approach offensively when you're not worrying about the other team scoring. But I am interested in how they will attack Kansas City's defense because they know on the other side of the ball you got to go up against number 15, Patrick Mahomes. So still plenty to talk about over the next hour. we got Joel Penfield joining us right here at the Barstool Sportsbook in Hollywood Casino in KCK. That is coming up here on the night shift. As, of course, we are out here with multiple TVs. we got a lot of you know, slot machines out here. Great setup, too. I mean, there's not a single game you can miss right now. We got a, we had a great finish between Providence and Xavier. That was around the TV in front of me. Right now, Boston is murdering Brooklyn 90-59. to So a big NBA game going on tonight. That's over there in the main room at the massive TV, but also on one of these many TVs in the main area at the Barstool Sportsbook. So we're going to have Joel join us next. We'll give you some scores later on in the second hour, but we will continue our Chiefs talk next here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino and KCK. This is The Night Show.
are back here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, coming to you live from the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Dylan Michaels running the show back at the studio, running all the commercials, playing the great music. Love this bumper, by the way. And now we are joined once again in person with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. We got a full hour dedicated to Joel. And Joel, it's your hour. I love having you on the show. But more importantly, I love having you right here in person, not it, over the phone. It makes it easier to communicate. Oh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. That NFL Films music, I mean, kind of fired up here for this next hour. God, I've been looking forward to this since <laughs> Sunday evening, man. Well, how this about This is going to be awesome. I it, feel so good right now. And you messaged me on Sunday and just going, you know, we have so much to talk about, and that is the case here, which is why I wanted to dedicate the first two hours of this show going over this AFC Championship win and previewing the matchup next Sunday night against the Philadelphia Eagles. But here's my first question to you. Patrick Mahomes has now won three AFC Championship games. Which one was more meaningful? Is it his first one where he beat Ryan Tannehill and the Titans just because it was number one? He got to the Super Bowl, finally got the Chiefs over the hump over 50 years. Was it the COVID year where you're dealing with a very small capacity crowd, you're playing the Buffalo Bills, and you just hammer Josh Allen? You just hammer the Buffalo Bills, they were the hottest team in football, and you find a way to just curb stomp them. Or was it Sunday night against the Cincinnati Bengals where you went 23-20, to 20, you beat your boogeyman, you exercised those demons, and move on to your third Super Bowl in four years? I think it, easily it was Sunday night. I mean, you're able to kind of exercise that demon from last season after Mahomes played the worst half of football in his entire career, manages to come back, plays fantastic the entire game given the circumstances, makes the play at the end of the game, you... You know, you reassert yourself as the dominant team of the AFC, the one that the Bengals claimed to be when they hadn't earned a damn thing yet. It felt so good to watch Patrick Mahomes finally get that moment, reassert himself, you know, prove to everyone there's no debate about who the best quarterback in the league is. There's no debate about him being a top-five quarterback of all time as it sits right now. He proved all of that. He wins on Sunday, and it is cemented in stone right there. Now, what's more impressive in that game? Is it Patrick Mahomes throwing for 300-plus and two touchdowns on a bum ankle, basically one foot? Is it this young secondary that was able to shut down guys? Like, well, I mean, you say shut down in some capacity of T. Higgins, Tyler Borden, Jamar Chase. Or was it this defensive line basically causing all kinds of hell for the Bengals' offensive line and Joe Burrow? Of those three options there, if I can give you it, Patrick Mahomes playing on one foot, the young secondary being tested, or Chris Jones leading the charge of that defensive rush, being able to finally put pressure on Joe Burrow in round four of this matchup. The, the biggest key to this game was going to be if Chris Jones could wreck the game. We, we talked about that last Wednesday, mm-hmm. that being one of the significant keys. And that, and that is like, because if he's able to get home, then that's going to help the secondary, which it did. And a ton of credit goes to McDuffie, Watson, and Williams. Those guys put their butts off, given the circumstances. Higgins and Chase are two of the top ten wide receivers in the league. That is no small task. They played admirably getting two interceptions, but a lot of that was caused by Chris Jones just wrecking the game from the interior, pushing the pocket back on Joe Burrow, making him get rid of the ball faster than he even likes to. He finally got that the monkey off his back, getting the two sacks, finally getting that postseason sack, ending that stupid narrative that he doesn't mm-hmm. show up in the playoffs. He's been double teamed for his entire career. He was able to kind of pick his spots, bull rush from the edge, and just, I mean, he, he absolutely dummied Akeem Adeniji a couple of times to get those sacks. 
and him being able to do that was the most impressive performance because not only helps Chris Jones cement himself as the premier defensive player in the league, at least this season right now. I know Nick Bose is going to win Defensive Player of the Year, but you can't tell me Chris Jones didn't have as good or possibly a better year. He's a Ring of Honor guy, and we're working on a Hall of Fame case now for Chris Jones. This game was that significant. It was the best of his career, and it came in a gotta-have-it game for Kansas City where they needed him to be that guy, and he was. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. We talk about legacy. We talk about legacy with quarterbacks, and you are somebody, and I'm not somebody, who really wants to read too much into quarterback wins because you look at a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo. Great winning percentage, wins a lot of games. He is not one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Absolutely not. But Patrick Mahomes, when looking at this game, specifically beating Joe Burrow, is that the biggest win he's had in his career? Non-Super Bowl, of course, winning okay, Super yes. Bowl that, That's is the caveat big. here, yes. I would... I'd probably say so. Mm. I think that this has to be, again, and I think a lot of it is just the narrative from last season. Losing that game that the way the Chiefs did, losing that game in, in Week 13 doesn't help that either. You win this game, it's significant for Patrick Mahomes because he would have been 4-0. There, even though we know Patrick Mahomes is better than Joe Burrow, the national media would not have wanted to believe that they because Joe Burrow, even though they don't actually square off against each other, is 4-0 against the Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes is 0-4 against the Bengals and Lou Anarumo, it would have conti- that narrative would have continued and worsened to a degree that would have just been laughable. That's not the case anymore. He's able to get that one, and it was a significant game. It was a game that mattered. He gets the Chiefs to the Super Bowl. This was the biggest one of his career that was not that game against San Francisco. Was it maybe a more frightening game to the rest of the NFL because of how these rookies played in the game? You talk about Isaiah Pacheco. You talk about Jalen Watson with the pick. Joshua Williams with the pick. Brian Cook tipping the pass that Joshua Williams picked off. I mean, you have all these young Sky George Moore. Karloftis with George Karloftis with the sack. Sky Moore makes maybe the biggest punt return of the season for the Kansas City Chiefs. If you're another team watching Kansas City in this game and trying to look for the downfall, pray for the downfall and go, man, not only did they win this game, they won this game with these rookies they drafted not in the first round, not in the second round. They were winning it with guys they took in the fourth, fifth, sixth, Day and seventh three round. three guys were the most significant impact in this game. Is that a game where you look at if you're, let's say, a team like the Raiders, a team like the Chargers, a team like the Ravens, and go, how the hell are we ever going to catch them if this is how they continue to pump out talent? The, as cocky as the Bengals are, the rest of the AFC was praying the Bengals were going to win oh, yeah. that game. The AFC messed up. They messed up this year. This was the year to get the Chiefs. Mm. You had to get them this year in what was considered a reboot year. Even the even Veach and them talked about, like, there's going to be a lot of adjustment this season with all of these young guys. We traded Tyreek Hill. Sure, we still have Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Chris Jones. There's still star power. It's not the same. Mm. We don't know how this is going to work. You're completely rebooting the, the wide receiver core, all of that. The Broncos load up. The Chargers load up. The Browns go and get Deshaun Watson. The Ravens are back with... Uh, with Lamar healthy. The Bengals, the Bills are the overwhelming favorites across every place you look for betting odds about who was going to win the Super Bowl. It was going to be the Bills. Just it was decided in August. That was the team that was going to do it. And none of them did it. The Chiefs went 14-3, and one seed, AFC Championship. They're going to go win another Super Bowl. This was the year where you ha- you could not let that happen, and you did. The Chiefs have too many good cost control players. They have the sixth most cap space in the league, the best quarterback on the planet. Good luck to the rest of the league for the next five to ten years. The Arrowhead Invitational has already happened five years in a row. It's going to keep happening because the Chiefs won on Sunday. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports. 
Network out here at Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. I've asked this to now two people on the show tonight. I asked this to Dylan. I asked this to Jordan Foote. If the Chiefs, and we've got to bring a little bit of negativity in here as much as you can after moving on to your third Super Bowl in four years, but if they lose to Philly, right, you lose to the 16-3 and Eagles, the number one seed in the NFC, how do you summarize the 2022-2023 Chiefs? Are you left satisfied with at least getting back to the Super Bowl because Patrick Mahomes gets an MVP, he won the AFC, he beat the Bengals, or do you take away and go, I'm disappointed. Uh, this team definitely got to that point. They weren't expected to be here, but I feel like when you look at a team like New England, their dynasty, they always maximize. Mm-hmm. They always seem to win in the Super Bowl every other year. And even in times where they lost it, you felt like, well, they've already got two or three in their pocket. They're going to get back there. I mean, what would you summarize? How would you summarize this team if they were to fall next Sunday night? I mean, I think we're at a point now in the Patrick Mahomes era where any season that doesn't end in a Super Bowl is a disappointment. Mm-hmm. And it, it got that way with Brady. It got that way with Manning and the Colts, Breeze and the Saints. Like the, the elite quarterbacks that have that continuity between coach and quarterback, if those those teams don't win a Super Bowl, it's a disappointment to the end of the year. I wouldn't call it a failure, but it certainly is a disappointment considering the way they were able to rebound go 14-3, and three, win your division going away, and have one of the top offenses we've ever seen in the NFL in terms of EPA, it is disappointing. Even though the Eagles are a fantastic team, it should not be taken lightly, and they deserve all the credit in the world if they do go and win. I'm not. It's not like the Chiefs are going to lose to an inferior opponent in the Super Bowl if it gets to that. But it is certainly a disappointment because the if you want to keep winning, you have to or you want Patrick Mahomes to get you know in that goat conversation. Like we believe that he can, you have to stack Super Bowls, and this is one where you have to go and get it. Uh, while Patrick Mahomes is, I mean, he is very early in his prime. Brady went ten years without a Super Bowl, but this feels like one that you certainly can get. It's not like the uh, the Eagles are world beaters. I think the team that the Chiefs played in the Forty ers two years at three years ago in the Super Bowl was a better team than the Eagles team we're going to see next Sunday. And that is interesting you bring it up because I was going to go back to this last Super Bowl or two Super Bowls ago the Chiefs played in. Uh, you think that you would fear that 49ers team more than this Philly team, oh, yeah. even with them having an inferior quarterback in Jimmy Garoppolo. Absolutely. So you think their defense overall their is defense that good? Because Philly's defense is really good too, but maybe just is. not as good it's as San It's not the same. They don't like They have some really solid – edge rushers, but they don't have Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead. A that, murderer's that, that, row, basically. DeForest Buckner. Like, they were just bringing any dude out there. Fred Warner was already the best linebacker in the league at that point. Dre Greenlaw, Jimmy Ward. Like that, mm-hmm. that, and the Eagles' defense is certainly really good. But that defense was better. The amount of weapons on the 49ers side on the offensive side was, I'd say, it's pretty comparable uh, to what the Eagles are able to bring out. I think the wide receivers are better. Uh, for the Eagles and A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, uh, Quez Watkins is really underrated. But I, that 49ers team was was legit. And I think Kyle Shanahan is a better coach than Nick Sirianni. So you have a little bit of – so there there's certain pros and cons to each team, but I thought that 49ers team was better than the Eagles team. Uh, not by much, certainly. but And I still think even – like if Brock Purdy didn't get hurt, I'd be more worried about playing the 49ers than I would have the Eagles. So it, it almost kind of worked out that way. You know, I think the difference between the 49ers and, and the Eagles, and which is why I think I was rooting more so for Philly, even with Mr. Relevant being their quarterback, is that, you know, how healthy is Jalen Hurts right now? I thought, yes. to me, he looked very conservative in that game. He, he did, did not play well. He, he did not play yeah. well at all. He was, like, the, his short intermediate throws were low. He was kind of mm-hmm. dirting them. He had no touch on the D-ball. Like, he was really trying to overcompensate for his shoulder. 
And if he's playing, he's probably playing like maybe 50, 60% right now. Really? I, I don't know. You think he I'm looks not, that way? Yeah, it, it certainly looks neither that way. Neither of us are right? with the athletic no, trainers no, here. We're making a guess. It certainly looks that way. He, it's not like he's hesitant to run, but you can tell he's a little skittish. Mm-hmm. He kind of looked that way against the Giants. Really didn't want to get hit too hard. And now, uh, even two weeks, he's probably, what, 70, 75%? And Patrick Mahomes is going to be, what, close to probably to 85, 90%? Yeah. I mean,. Jalen Hurts at 75% is not as terrifying, right? And Jalen Hurts at 100%, who knows? Like, there's still a lot of unknown there in that big of a game. Last couple times he was in a really big game. I know it's college, but he didn't play very well. Yeah. So you got to know how the moment is. You know, how does he handle that moment? There's a lot of unknown with the Eagles. I think the Eagles are a great team. They were the class of the NFC this year, but there is a lot of unknown where I don't think there's as much unknown when it comes to Kansas City and sort of it. There's sort of a been there, done that. Three Super Bowls mm-hmm. in four years. A lot of these guys, the, you know, there aren't a lot of guys left from that first Super Bowl, but there's there are impactful guys, Frank Clark, Chris Jones, Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes, that can help those young guys prepare for that moment. And the rookies and even some other guys like Willie Gay, and uh, I'm trying to think of who else, McColl and some others that were a part of the Super Bowl loss, they have that bad taste in their mouth from the last time they were in that big game. So that they know what to expect. And we'll get into a much deeper dive of that Super Bowl matchup next Wednesday when we're out here at the Barstool Sportsbook. But I think if there's one thing to me uh, that you can really alter this game, I think it's going to be close either way. I don't think either side blows out the other. But if you are Philly, with as good as they are running the ball with their trio of running backs, Miles oh, yeah. Sanders, Kenneth Gainwell, Boston Scott, the way to get Jalen Hurts comfortable, if what you're saying is true and what we maybe believe is true, around 60, 65, maybe 70%, the best way to get that quarterback comfortable, be able to take the underneath routes, is if he knows the running game is working. And I think that's what the Bengals tried to do early on. They wanted to establish a little bit of their own Joe Mixon. Couldn't get anything. Nothing. I mean, the Chiefs did a fantastic job of closing up the middle of the, the, the defensive line. And the offensive line with the Bengals is also ravaged. They probably just weren't going to play as well as they did against Buffalo. But once Kansas City shut that down, Joe Burrow and the Bengals' office didn't look the same. Mm-mm. I expect the same type of performance from Philly if they can't get their running game going, which through these two postseason games, it's been great. It's oh, been great yeah. against New York. It's been great against San Francisco. And if Jalen Hurts isn't healthy and you shut down the running game, that's where you can really take control of this game because you're asking a quarterback who's maybe not that healthy to try to go win the game against a defense that maybe or maybe not is generating pressure. Maybe they're shutting down your number one in A.J. Brown. I just think right now – Jalen Hurts hasn't been tested in the postseason to sort of go, all right, I faced some adversity. Now I have to go put the team on my back. He hasn't had to do yet because they've been two nope. blowout wins. So would that be maybe the message going against game if you're Steve Spagnuolo? First things first, we got to shut down the run because that is something they're going to try to establish very, very early on in the first quarter. It, it has to be. That, that has to be the focal point here. And if there's anybody that's going to put together their AAA+, plus, defensive game plan in a big game at Steve Spagnuolo. He has done that for his entire career. You have a big game where you it's a gotta have it. We need to win this game for either the conference title or the Super Bowl. Dating all the way back to that, that 07 Giants yep. team that he was the defensive coordinator for. They had their best game of the season that game. Last Sunday, easily the best game the Chiefs played all season on the defensive side of the ball from just a schematic standpoint. And I know that there is not. We are not always thought think very highly of Steve Spagnuolo. He is very polarizing, uh, but you can tell a lot of times in those regular season games they're holding stuff back for games like this. They don't want to put too much on film. 
they couldn't run a ton of exotic stuff with all the young players in the secondary. Those guys aren't rookies anymore. Those are established NFL players at this point that are now comfortable in this defense where they can do a little bit more. I, I expect them to have their, their best, even better defensive game plan than they had against Cincinnati. Two weeks to prepare. I, I feel really good about what Spags is going to be able to dial up for those guys uh, coming up on Sunday. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. How much does the Chiefs' injury problems right now Ooh. give you concern? Right, they came, they didn't practice today, but they came out with a report of a estimated of who would have practiced, who would have not. I believe Trey Smith has an ankle issue, but he would have been limited. I think they said Willie Gay would be limited with his shoulder, but for the rest of them, you're talking Juju. Uh, you're talking with Cole Hardman, guys like that. They Tony, wouldn't have practiced. Tony, Tony and Snead did not would, did not practice. Would not either. have practiced. Yeah. How much does that concern you with about a week and a half to go before the big game? It, it's very worrisome, but thankfully we're, they're not playing on Sunday. They're playing mm-hmm. next Sunday, so there's still a lot of time. Uh, the biggest worry is Snead being able to get through concussion protocol. That's just such a dicey thing at this point. Uh, I, I hope he can play. He is very significant to this defense. But even with him out, the young guys really stepped up and played well and got a lot of significant reps in a big game like that. So even if he's out, I still trust the defense to, to hold together just well. But it's obviously significant to have LeJerry Sneed in there. On the offensive side, like the, the wide receiver core was held together with duct tape and WD-40. At the Marcus end of that game. Kemp was catching passes and Marcus in the fourth Kemp quarter. has six times more tackles. Mm-hmm. in the NFL than he does career catches coming into that game. Now they are going to get Justin Watson back. He missed the, the last game, but I don't want Justin Watson being my wide receiver too, even though he's gotten wide receiver two snaps all season. That's a whole different story. But if you're able to get Juju back and Hardman back in some capacity, Tony back in some capacity, you feel a little better. I want at least just one of the three back, and if I had to pick, I really want Juju back and maybe Tony on a pitch count, and you probably can tape something together. Um I tried 15. You could they you could throw us out there with 15, and he would still find a way to throw for 300 yards and two touchdowns. Now you're speaking of this wide receiver core riddled with injuries, but I want you to take your pick right now because I think two of these guys are very comparable in how they played for the Chiefs in the postseason. You can either get playoff Sammy Watkins or you can get playoff Marquez Valdez Scantling. Who are you taking? <laughs> man, playoff Sammy was another animal. He was Super Bowl run man. That. I'd still take playoff Sammy, but that's not discounting what Marquez did on Sunday where it was him, and then they were kind of having Sky Moore out there and Marcus Kemp at the end of that game, and he was still finding ways to get open, still finding ways to get in the end zone. Um, He justified that entire contract the Chiefs gave him in one game. I don't think he'll be here for that full three years, but – I think we'll be able to look back on MVS's time in Kansas City and think about, especially if the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, like, man, we wouldn't even have been in that game if it wasn't for the game MVS had against Cincinnati. It's going to be that. I think it was that type of performance. It wasn't, like, jaw-dropping amazing, but considering the injuries and everything else, uh, certainly going to be looked back on fondly uh, for what Marquez did on Sunday for the Chiefs. You know, I think it's so interesting in postseason runs, the guys that become heroes and how they then are immune to any sort of criticism. Yeah. I felt like back in the Super Bowl run in 2019 and 2020, you know, didn't like Jordan Lucas have an interception in the Super Bowl? It was, it was, the, Ken, it was Kendall the, Fuller. Kendall Fuller had one. I thought there was one in the first. It, it was, was it Breland? It, it might have been Breland. Breland. So Bashad yeah. Breland's one of those I, guys. I know that because I watched highlights of the yes. game today when I was sitting <laughs> There you go. Desk. So Bashad Breland gets the interception, not Jordan Lu- Lucas, the pride of the Miami Dolphins or the Miami Dolphins hero. It was 
Bashad Breland who gets that interception, I think, in the first or second quarter. You know, he's a guy that you look back on very fondly because he did something like that. Yeah. Sammy Watkins always looked back fondly Play- because I mean, he waited in the Clark's postseason. Frank Clark's entire tenure oh, yeah. in Kansas City. Playoff Frank is a different animal. You can criticize him in the regular season, but he always comes up big third, in the postseason. Third most sacks Pass in, White. in NFL history. And that is, uh, I don't know if that's just the adrenaline rushing through the body of Frank Clark. I don't know if it's that he just, you know, enjoys the colder weather. I, I don't know. Maybe he likes the, the lights being brighter. But maybe that's something I've been hung up on the last three, four years, yeah. is that Frank Clark could go six games without ever getting in the backfield, without ever getting any heat on the quarterback. And then all of a sudden, he turns into the Chiefs' best edger. Look, looks like Derek Thomas out there mm-hmm. in a postseason game, going one-on-one, getting double-teamed, just finding a way to get around the ball. Is that just a player – you know, sort of shining in the big moment. He Absolutely. just likes the big moments. Or is there something you can really chalk it up to? Because I can't put my head around it. Why can he play so well in the postseason, but maybe be so quiet in the regular I, season? Some of it too, like the, some of the injuries and the illnesses that he goes yeah. through. Like I think he does have to kind of pace himself in the regular season to be ready for this. And then he knows I only have so many games left uh, in the season. And then he just kind of just goes all out. Uh, it's not like he he doesn't go all out in the, but he does what he can. Uh, it, there, there's some some of those external factors that are that are tough to for us to qualify, but what he's able to do is so impactful for this organization. The leadership he provides, uh, the way he's loved in that locker room, and then obviously the production on the field uh, when it matters most. Do you bring him back? I honestly, if he goes out and has a, a sack and a half or two or two in the Super Bowl, I think you bring him back. I don't think it has to be as a starter. Um, if you go and get an edge rusher in the in the draft, or you go in free agency and keep him around as the veteran in that room, and kind of let him kind of go on a pitch count and then play off Frank in the in the playoffs, I, I could see them doing. It. The Chiefs have the cap space to make it work. They do. and it seems like he loves it here. He loves Andy Reid. He loves Spags. He loves this organization. He seems like the type of guy that at this point he's made so much money in his career, he'll take a lower deal like incentive laden performance based stuff. And just be here to, to continue trying to stack up rings. Go get that playoff sack record for end up most in the postseason. I'm sure Frank would want to return, even if he had to restructure his contract like he did last year. He didn't have to do that this past he didn't. season. He did, and he chose to. Because he wants to stay on a team that could chase another Super Bowl ring. Yep. And, you know, where I kind of stand on it, I'd be more willing to let him walk if Brett Veach was maybe a little bit more successful drafting edge rushers, and especially in the later rounds. Like, for instance... I would be okay if the Chiefs let LeJarrius Sneed walk. I really would. Because I think the Chiefs have gotten a lot of value, and Brett Veach has always gotten value in late rounds going with guys in the secondary. I get it. Yeah. And LeJarrius Sneed was a later-round pick. You could find a LeJarrius Sneed in this year's draft, or maybe it's Joshua Williams or Jalen Watson that becomes that LeJarrius Sneed. Or Trent McDuffie was a first-round pick and a blue-chip guy. I like George Karloftis. I think he's going to be a fine starter. But I think if I'm the Chiefs, I don't know if you can gamble on kind of having a question mark opposite of George Karloftis this year. George, George Karloftis is a great Robin. He will never be a great Batman, mm-hmm. but if you have a Batman on the other side of him, then Karloftis is going to feast. And I'm not saying that Frank Clark is that guy, and I'm not trying to advocate for him getting starter snaps next yeah. season, but uh, and in a rotation, in certain, especially early rundowns. A team-friendly deal. Yeah, too. on a team-friendly deal, absolutely. I think Frank Clark has still has – a ton to give to this organization, and if he he wants to stay and the Chiefs are willing to bring him back for whatever number they feel is necessary, I think he still has some value uh, to the to the Chiefs moving forward over the next 
maybe two seasons. Well, that's kind of the problem. I don't want to really call it a problem in the draft, but when you are drafting 29 to 32 it's every really single tough. year, there's no elite edge rusher sitting there. You now have to get she, in the top 20. Now that she's had 12 draft picks coming up here, you though, so you have up. an opportunity to trade up. And if there's somebody you really like in the top 15, by all means, I think you go out and get him because if there is one area, I think the Chiefs really need to find that guy again. Like, for instance, we could say Justin Houston was a guy that fell in the draft. He was a later round pick because of you know off field stuff that happened. Tom Bahali was a first round pick, wasn't he? Tom Bahali, I believe, was a first round pick out of Penn State. So you can go out and get your elite edge rusher, but I just don't know if you'll find it in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth round. You know, the later you get, I just don't it's think so you find tough. you find rotational guys. Mm-hmm. And I think they've gotten guys that have you know a lot of potential. They ooze that that type of talent where it's like a, a Josh Kando or a Mike Tana Dana. Passing. Hey, Mike Dana. Mike Dana was a fifth-round pick. Mm-hmm. So you have guys that maybe were not super high-ceiling guys like a Mike Dana, or you get the guys that have all the talent in the world but maybe can't stay healthy. That's what you go for in the fourth, fifth, and sixth round. But if you can't find that, you might as well bring Frank Clark back on, on a one-year, let's say like an eight, nine, maybe $10 million deal. I have no issue with that whatsoever, especially since your defense played so well this year up front. You were fifth in the league in sacks. I can't really argue with the way they were able to generate pressure, whether that be through Steve Spagnuolo dialing up the blitzes at the right time, or it was from guys winning one-on-one battles. I mean, Chris Jones certainly helped the case with him kind of just winning those battles right in the middle of the field. So I would say, you know, overall, Frank Clark does make sense to this team. I'm sure he would want to stay. I'm sure he makes sense for this team. But moving forward, if you can't find him through the draft, maybe you just stick through free agency with your edge rushing group because that's maybe where you'd find more talent. Yeah, I, I don't know what the edge free agent market looks like this season. Um, but given the kind of the inflation of the position when it comes to salaries, now you're dealing with a cap situation. I know Veach is a cap wizard, but that is going to be really – that's going to be tricky because you're going to probably end up paying Chris Jones a lot of money, as he deserves, mm-hmm. to keep that guy around, pay him whatever he wants, especially if he has a, a good Super Bowl. It's going to be really tricky, and I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. <laughs> We'll take our first break of the second hour. We're out here with Joel Penfield of the KC Sports Network at Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino and KCK. I've been your host, Jack Johnson. This is the Night Shift. Coming up next, we're going to continue our deep dive into the Chiefs' postseason run and continue to look ahead to that Sunday night matchup. Next Sunday night, that is Chiefs and Eagles in the Super Bowl kickoff will be at 5.30 on Fox. That's next on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I like this kind of party! Out here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK, I'm your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels back on the board, and Joel Penfield still joining me up until about the 9 o'clock hour. He's from KC Sports Network, and we are finishing up our two-hour rundown of this show tonight of everything Chiefs football, talking about the AFC title game against Cincinnati, previewing this matchup against Philly, talking about the legacy of Patrick Mahomes. But I think one of the, the best segues right now, and still tied in the Chiefs a little bit, is talking about the breaking news of today, which was that Tom Brady, for the second time, announced his retirement 
from the NFL. He did so via his Twitter account. He posted it, I want to say even on Instagram too or something like that, saying that he is done for good. He is finally walking away from football. Joel, pretty simple here. Can you buy that? Do you think this is finally yet for Tom Brady? Can you retire and come out of retirement twice in your career? Or does that take away all the legitimacy of it? I mean, it feels like to me, after all the physical and emotional tax this had on Tom Brady, this really is the end for him. Yeah, I I had a hard time believing I thought it was going to be some spoof video mm-hmm. when I first saw it pull up. But when he, like his tone flipped and his emotion kind of got into his voice when he was talking about thanking everybody, his family, his competitors, his coaches, all that, you could tell that it was different. And I, I do think that is the end for Tom Brady. I was not expecting that at all. I thought he was going to go play one more season because he didn't want to play in Tampa this year, go end his career kind of on his terms in a different location. Uh, but the fact that he's still able to walk away, still be a really good football player at 45 years old, walk away on his own terms, you know, all the credit in the world to him for being able to do that. And I think that the majority of football fans would give him the title of the GOAT, the greatest of all time. He's got the most rings. He built a dynasty in New England. I mean, to appear in double-digit Super Bowls and win seven of them is ridiculous. And it's something we're likely never going to see again. But we are using this comparison at the top of the hour that Bill Russell has 11 rings. He won 11 NBA championships. You don't walk up to a random person and you ask who the greatest of all time is, and they say Bill Russell. right? You, you just don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you usually say Michael Jordan or you say LeBron James. And I saw this topic come up on the herd with Colin Coward, and he was saying, you know, why do we have to wait any longer to call Patrick Mahomes the greatest of all time? He said that he was the best quarterback that he had seen. You know, play the game of football. Tom Brady, as much of a winner that he was, he wasn't the most physically gifted guy. You know, he's a later-round pick out of Michigan. He wasn't, you know, this super-fast guy. He wasn't, in fact, mobile at all. He didn't have a huge arm. He just won a lot of games, played really well within the system. Not a safety system quarterback, but he was maybe he not was as the talented. System. He was the system. And he had a great head coach in Bill Belichick. He took over for Drew Bledsoe. But you talk about Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow. It feels like those guys have more talent. But if this generation, Patrick Mahomes is really the only one that is sort of winning all these accolades he's going to get his second mvp he's going for his second super bowl ring if mahomes wins it on sunday wins the mvp he's got two mvps two super bowl rings in five years as a starter if you could have the debate right now where it's still you have tom brady and his seven super bowl rings but mahomes what he's done in five years can you even entertain the idea that patrick mahomes is the greatest of all time or can he not reach that echelon until he gets maybe five Super Bowl rings. There's an incredible amount of bias in the statement, but unequivocally Patrick Mahomes is one of the greatest of all time already, as it sits right now. I said it in one of my rambling things there in the the top of this hour, that he's already a top-five quarterback in the history of the league in five years. He's already outdone so many quarterbacks that that have been in that that five-to-ten range already in his career in five seasons. And if he wins another Super Bowl, another MVP, which he's already got locked up at this point, it just hasn't been announced, unequivocally he is and we it's the similar conversation to kind of what lebron is currently doing right now in the nba where people that want to believe michael jordan is the best or kareem or whoever well they're like well come to me when he has six championships well lebron's about to be the all-time leading scorer he's top five in assists he has all these accolades all the mvps all the you know the grandeur and and four rings mahomes wins four rings you know or four you know four super bowls he gets 
another two MVP, two to three MVPs, plays 18 years, and is on pace right now to break all of Tom Brady's records that he had in, what, 23? And Mahomes could probably do it in 18 to 20? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how you could think otherwise that Patrick Mahomes isn't the greatest player of all time. We're going to be having this debate all the time because we're obviously Kansas Cityans. Yeah. We are Chiefs it's fans. It's going to sound biased. It yeah. is obviously going to sound biased, but... When someone like Colin Cowherd, who has lauded Tom Brady for pretty much his entire media mm-hmm. career, is now going, I, okay, like I, I can't deny it anymore. Like I can't yeah. not say that Patrick Mahomes, you know, isn't that guy. Then you know it's a significant argument at this point, and I, I don't see how it couldn't be. Well, you know, I think the most fascinating part about it all is that over the course of Tom Brady's 23-year career. There were a handful of big games where you go, well, I think the Patriots' defense or Bill Belichick. His first three Super Bowls. It it was just the defense outplayed the other team. Mm -hmm. Tom Brady did enough to win the game. He didn't make that many mistakes or didn't make too many costly mistakes that cost him the game. You go to every single big game Patrick Mahomes has played in, it's been Mahomes won them the game. Mm -hmm. Even if he didn't play that well for the first Super Bowl ring. He didn't play that well, but he did lead the charge, did lead the comeback. Damian Williams is a big part of it. But But he went nuclear in the fourth quarter and led them back on that comeback. He was the one that really willed them to victory. And maybe you can consider that into your, your debate on who the greatest of all time is. But also another thing you want to factor in, it's a different time period. Tom Brady took over as quarterback of the New England Patriots when the AFC East was not very good, right? There was no quarterback in Buffalo. There was no quarterback in New York. There was no quarterback in Miami. And it stayed that way His for 15, 20 career years. career in New England. And I saw today the stat of Tom Brady's record against every team. He was 33-3 and three against Buffalo. 30-7. and 30-7 against the Jets. I mean, just there never really was a true competitor mm-hmm. in his division. Now, in the conference, he had Peyton Manning. Maybe you could consider Phillip Rivers an option, but for the most part, there weren't many great quarterbacks yet. In Denver, you had Jake Plummer and Kyle Orton before Peyton Manning got there. So Tom Brady just benefited from a really good time for him for New England, not trying to take away from what they did. They just wanted to go out and win those games. I mean, the game the, the game of football has just changed now. There's a lot of great quarterbacks, a lot of mobile quarterbacks, a lot of freakish quarterbacks. But I'll never forget this, that in high school, I'll use this comparison, uh, I one time went, and I didn't play football my freshman year, but I went and watched some of my buddies play in a freshman game, and there was this one kid, he was a running back, and he was built different than everybody else. He was like six foot three, 215 pounds. Everybody else hadn't hit puberty yet. And he's just running for 250 yards in the game, four touchdowns. It just it wasn't close. He was just that much better than everybody else. And that's how I kind of feel like New England was for so long. They were just better than everybody else. There was no true competitor, whereas now in the AFC, you could pick four or five different Super Bowl contenders out of the AFC. You know, next year, we know this is going to happen. Chiefs could win or lose, and they'll go, oh, the Chargers are going to be there. Uh, the Ravens, if Lamar Jackson comes back, are going to be there. The Broncos. People are going to buy into the Broncos, Broncos for some ungodly reason. Cincinnati, Buffalo. I mean, all these teams, they're going to be picked because it really is that even. But maybe the the unbelievable part about it all is that every time there's this new shiny toy, it always seems to be the Chiefs in the end. And maybe that's what you can consider into in your greatest of all time is that in a much tougher time period, Patrick Mahomes is maybe doing more in his first five years than Brady ever did in his first five years. And there's a certain amount of it, too, where Brady always was really good. Uh, He was always just a really solid, but he was never thought of as the best quarterback consistently in the league. He was always good and in the conversation, but it was never... Tom Brady, Gap, Peyton Manning, mm-hmm. Philip Rivers, Drew Brees—you know, n- name whoever you want from the 2000, 2010. Big Ben, in that conversation too. It was never that. It was always, it could be Brady, it could be Manning. Oh, you know, hey, Brady had a really good year, but Manning was better this year, et cetera, et cetera. It's 
Patrick Mahomes versus the field in the NFL right now, and it's not even close. You can debate a wall about who second place is. I don't care. It's Patrick Mahomes, Gap, Joe Burrow, I think Trevor Lawrence, Gap, Justin Herbert, Gap, Josh Allen, and then debate after that. Notice I said all AFC quarterbacks, yeah. which factors in because the, the the talent in the AFC is stacked, and the Chiefs still managed to win all these games. Patrick still won MVP despite all the talent in his own conference alone and in his own division alone. Is it something now we're in Kansas City that we, we almost take for granted what we are seeing on the field oh, yes. every yes, single yes, time yes. that – you know, we may see a bad interception right, from Patrick Mahomes. We may see him trying to force the issue, but sometimes I get lost in it and just expecting so much from this team that you're not really taking into account what is going on in the NFL is that a team like Kansas City, who prior to Andy Reid taking over, were in just a, a completely awful place. I mean, I can't really think of another word to describe it. They were a complete wasteland in the NFL. Oh, yeah. They were 2-14. and 14. They had a strike game where they all the fans wore black to protest Scott Pioli. You had the murder-suicide of Javon Belcher. I mean, I mean oh, man, everything. Yeah. There was nothing going right in Kansas City. And then since that point, you've had the consistency. You built the structure, the foundation. But now it almost is just so easy. You can go in every single year and not really freak out over a Super Bowl appearance. Like, that's the way I felt on Sunday. I was wildly entertained by the game. I was very intense, jumping up and down and screaming. But at the end of the day, I went... Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I expected, whereas for a lot of teams out there, they've gone their entire lives without seeing this team appear in the Super Bowl. They've gone their entire lives without seeing their team win a Super Bowl. And the fact the Chiefs already have that monkey off their back, it makes it that much different. And now it's all about building on that, making you feel like it is a dynasty. Because I think the question to be brought up is, if the Chiefs win on Sunday, can you start the conversation of a dynasty? Because anybody can run into one, right? Anybody can run into one Super Bowl. Maybe not anybody, but one team can get lucky. They can get hot at the right time. I mean, Carolina nearly got lucky the one year they went 15-1 and with Cam Newton. Nearly won. Lost to the Broncos when Peyton Manning had one of his worst statistical years. That's what I'm talking about. Philly and Nick Foles. It can happen. But if you win that second one, does the conversation of dynasty finally come into play? I, I think it certainly can. Um, people in New England will say otherwise because it's only two, blah, 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 blah. But like we we've normalized greatness so quickly with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, like it happened so fast because he lit the world on fire in 2018, and so quickly became the best quarterback in the league that he's doing all of these things. Like his down year is still better than anything Josh Allen has put up in mm-hmm. the league. And I, I did start to kind of take it for granted a little bit. Like we all like we all have that we've just seen it for five consecutive years that, you know, it's just kind of what we expect. And today I, I had a little downtime at work and. Uh, I went back and found some old Chiefs highlights from like that late 2000s, early 2010s, and found a game that my dad was actually sitting next to me, uh, listening to us here uh, down at the Barstool Sportsbook. And I watched an old, it was Chiefs Steelers from 2009. Now, the Chiefs won this game, but it was Matt Castle. Yep. And I'm Chris Chambers. Chris Chambers, the Chris Chambers game. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, I look at the. The, the wide receivers they were trotting out in that game, Matt Castle and the Chiefs had 47 yards in the first half total total yards. Uh, this was not counting the Jamal Charles kickoff Keep return. To open the game. Uh, the receivers in that game were Bobby Wade, Colby Smith, Lance Long, Leonard Pope was playing tight end, and Chris Chambers. We've come a long way in about 14 years. 
those and I don't even think yeah, Bo was either hurt or just not playing. Bo, they said on the broadcast that he had uh, missed those games. I think it was like a PED suspension. It was like suspension. a four. Yeah. So Bobby Wade, Lance Long, Chris Chambers, Colby, Colby Smith. Smith. Uh, I want to say Colby Smith was a running back. Uh, he might have been. Uh, but I looked at all of their uh, football reference pages. None of them were in the league other than Chris Chambers longer than like two years. And then we had Matt Castle, who is an awesome radio and, and media analyst at this yeah. point. Does some great work for us at KCSN. Uh, he was not a great quarterback. And you, and it's just like, I can't normalize it anymore. I can't normalize what Patrick is doing because for so long as Chiefs fans, we had some horrific quarterback play. Alex Smith came in, stabilized the position, and now we have the greatest quarterback who's ever existed playing for us and will be for the next 12 to 15 years. And I think that's where you can kind of go from era to era here. Uh, the Chiefs did have some really good teams from early 2000s and uh, some competitive teams with Alex Smith, but you always felt in the back of your mind, you got to avoid this team because you're not going to be able to beat that quarterback. Yep. You weren't going to be able to beat Tom Brady. They could, the, the Steelers were the boogeyman. Steelers in were that the era. boogeyman. Yep. You couldn't beat Big Ben. Uh, in your own division, you couldn't beat Peyton Manning. You couldn't beat Phillip Rivers. And, and that kind of hung over your head, whereas now you go into an average Sunday. And it's considered an upset if you lose. It doesn't matter if you're playing Buffalo or Cincinnati. You expect to win every single game. And I think that's something that I personally take for granted because you get frustrated and pissed off when they lose the Colts in week three or they lose in Buffalo in week six. They lose to Cincinnati again. You're going, well, this team's just no good. They're never going to figure it out. And in the blink of an eye, they're 16-3 in the Super Bowl. Without a Hall of Fame wide receiver, they traded away. And that's where I'm going Man, really, this is something we have never seen in the NFL, that a team that basically admitted, hey, we are going to go into a bit of a soft rebuild. We still feel like we're going to give ourselves a chance to get to a Super Bowl, but to overachieve in the way that they have this year, if they win on Sunday night, they would then be, I think this team would have the all-time single-season win record at 17. I don't believe the Chiefs have shattered that before unless I'm missing one year way, way, way back. But I feel like 17 would be the highest total of any team. I think so. Well, the technically the uh, that 07 Pats team went 18 or for, and for the Chiefs. The Chiefs. Oh, for the Chiefs. Right. Chiefs. Yeah, Sorry, Chiefs I thought you were talking right. about the yeah. NFL. I, yeah, I missed New that. England. They, they came close. Yes, of course, to to having the perfect season. But I feel like this team was so unorthodox in the way of you trade away Tyreek Hill. You didn't really pound anybody. You pounded the 49ers. Oddly enough, 44 to 23. They pounded the Bucks. I, that game wasn't like that game was 41 It was a backdoor 31. cover. I think it yeah, was something like yeah. that. Jacksonville, the, neither of those games were close. Like they, they kind of picked their spots, and it's a weird thing because I think it's, I think it was um, Cowherd that said it a couple of years ago. Like the Chiefs are the closest thing to like the Kevin Durant Golden State Warriors mm-hmm. that could on a a C game still beat a team by twenty, and mm-hmm. they didn't, you know. To give their feel all like they every to. single they night, they, they don't have to show all the stuff. Like they, Chris Jones talked about, they played a super vanilla game plan against mm-hmm. the Bengals in Week 13 because they didn't want to show him out on the edge for this game specifically because they knew they were going to see the Bengals again. That's the way the Chiefs are playing now. They're playing it for the playoffs. Mm-hmm. The the regular season is to get through, get there, and then go win in the playoffs yeah. and win the Super Bowl. That's the expectation. It's not getting in. It's it, they're because they know they're going to get in as long as you have 15. You're going to get into the playoffs every single year. It's a matter of getting in there, be healthy enough, and then go and play your best football in January. And it sort of is the Patriot way, as much as you it want to is. admit that you hate New England. They were awful in September. It, it, 
consistently. They, were. they didn't really they didn't flip the switch until later on in the year. They knew they could win their division. The Chiefs likely had the same mentality. But I think I've said this uh, on the show before, and I think Joel, you were sitting right next to me when I said this, is that I was at the game earlier this year against Buffalo in Week Six, and Bills Mafia had you know flooded into Arrowhead Stadium. It was a big game for them. They wanted to have revenge for that loss the year before in the AFC divisional round. And when they won that game, every single person that traveled or just was wearing Bills gear. They went to the front row. They waited for the team to come back on the field. I mean, they were waving flags. I mean, it literally looked like Mardi Gras down there. And every Chiefs fan leaving, you know, you can have some, you know, drunk idiots that are going to be pouring beer on somebody or getting in a fight. That just always happens at a football game. For the most part, people are leaving the stadium going, okay, we'll see him again. You know, you can enjoy this now, but we, this But, hey, doesn't Buffalo won their Super Bowl in week six for the second year in a row. Congrats. Second, exactly. And I think that that's where you kind of separate yourself from the teams that are chasing you. That, you know, in Cincinnati, though they beat you in the AFC Championship game, it still kind of felt like they were chasing Kansas City because everybody Not was according to Cincinnati, but hey, go, yeah. don't put the cart before the horse. To Joe they, Mixon, yeah. They figured that out. It, it just kind of feels like to me that Kansas City has sort of tried to adopt the Patriot way of, you know, moving forward – the most important thing is that we're healthy. You know, you lose in week three to a bad team, to the Texans or the Colts, you know, AFC South team, NFC South team, and you go, oh, we didn't play very well. We want to win every single game. But it's not a doomsday scenario because exactly. the Chiefs have shown every single year under Patrick Mahomes they can win ten in a row. It just blink of an eye, and you just feel like, well, that's just going to come. That's going to happen. Last year they started, what, two and four? Yeah, they had that weird stretch. Went and then nine they in a row. And then still managed to win nine in a row and get to the AFC Championship game when people in week seven were like, they're not even going to make the playoffs. And still managed to do it. Just one more thing, talking about like kind of that the mentality of other teams in the AFC that are just now starting to win, that are starting to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Did the football gods smite someone harder than Mike Hilton ever? The we'll yeah. see y'all at Burrowhead. <laughs> and then did you see his stat line? It was bad. Uh, I believe it was nine targets, eight catches, 133 yards, and a touchdown. That's the Philip Gaines stat line. Philip Gaines would have loved to have Mike Hilton's stat line. I think so. Game. Because yeah. I think that one was nine for two of games. Yeah, my, <laughs> I still see that one pop up. I see that in my nightmares, I think. Oh, I also God. remember the, the game where Philip Gaines had the ball bounce off his face mask mm-hmm. and bounce up in the air to Antonio Brown, who then scampered in for the game. I remember that, yeah. And that's kind of tying back in the part of talking about bad Chiefs teams or Chiefs teams that were competitive and just not good enough. Now it's different. Now, last question I want to ask you, Joel, before we hit our final break of the second hour. If Andy Reid wins it, Against Philadelphia, stays undefeated against the Eagles in his career, seventeen and three. Believe the most wins in franchise history for the Chiefs. Is this the best coaching job he has ever done in his soon-to-be Hall of Fame career? It's got to be right. Like I, I can't see it. Maybe, maybe you could say the first Super Bowl year because they had the Patrick Mahomes knee injury in the middle mm-hmm. of the year and had to to tape it together with Matt Moore for three games. Yeah. I, I think there is something to that. But overall, I think it's got to be because he was able to keep his guys together. They go 14-3 and three in a year they should not have, or at least it was thought they should not have. And when there's all this talk around Cincinnati, he keeps everyone pretty low profile. They go and let the play do the talking, and they win. And now he's going to, to face his former employer in the Super Bowl. He's able to win that game against a really, really well-coached team, a very good team in Philadelphia. I, I think this one has got to be. What's even funnier and ironic to me is this team that won 16 games, they've had some thrillers and some heart-stopping games. They were kind of boring to watch. They were very methodical. Yeah. And I think that's what comes with maturity, right? In 2018 and 2019, when Mahomes busted onto the scene, it was 50-yard touchdown passes. It was cash and, and runs that. and all the flashy plays. And they've had flashy plays this year, but for the most part, 
they take a very methodical approach. They're just very seasoned. They have a they don't talk that much. You know, Andy Reid he's very much into coaches speak. This was a, a boring team, really. And that may be bad to say, but boring in a good way. They just that's what the Patriots they just did. Won. They, they just methodically won. beat you. They, they just won football games, and they won sixteen of them, and have a chance to win seventeen now. Not saying they didn't have thrillers or exciting games, because certainly you saw on Sunday night that was maybe one of the more thrilling games we had seen at Arrowhead Stadium. But in the way they play. It's a more methodical, slower-paced offense where they take what's given to them. They're not burning everybody with 80-yard plays. They don't have Tyreek Hill anymore. They have those eight-yard passes to Juju, the screen passes to Pacheco and McKinnon, the, the out routes to Kelsey. They, they can still beat you down the field, but sometimes they don't choose to. They may play with their food a little bit, and then by the end of it, they're just in the W. It's so. the correlation with the maturity of Patrick Mahomes that he is getting at the position. He did still chase the big play as he did in college, and then he was able to do in the NFL because he was just so wildly talented that it worked, but as the league figured it out, he had to mature along with you know, the offense. Mm-hmm. They managed to do that, and now you're seeing him getting into the peak of his powers. He's barely into his prime, folks, <laughs> which is he is 27 years old. He is barely into the peak of his powers as a quarterback. We're, we're just getting started, we are, and we're, we're three Super Bowls into this thing. And hopefully many, many more to come. But his third Super Bowl appearance, Patrick Mahomes, that is, will be next Sunday night in Glendale against the Philadelphia Eagles, the one seed from the AFC against the one seed in the NFC. Joel, as always, thanks so much for your time, and thanks for coming here in person glad to join to the show tonight. Glad to do it. Let's talk, Wednesday. Let's talk on next Wednesday and preview this. The Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. Exactly. I'm never going to get it's never going to get old saying that particular sentence. I'll make sure that your seat is warm next Wednesday about the same time. Let's go at 8 p.m. All right, that's our final break here of the second hour. If you're done hearing about the Chiefs, don't worry. Uh, we've got some college basketball and some Royals to talk about in the final hour of the show. We are out here at Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Big thank you to Jordan Foot. Big thank you to Joel Penfield. But when we come back, we'll talk some KU and K State hoops. The Sunflower Show. On last night, we'll dive into that and what's next for those two teams as they enter their final month of conference play. So that's coming up on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Back here on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, coming to you live from Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. Dylan Michaels back in the studio running things and doing a great job of it. We just spend the first two hours of the show completely dedicating it to the Kansas City Chiefs, who are on to their third Super Bowl in the last four seasons. But for the last hour, we're going to talk about anything but the Chiefs. We'll be talking some college basketball, of course, here, as you heard from the bumper music with the I'm a Jayhawk. I believe it's the I'm a I went to KU, and I don't even know what it's exactly called, but you know the, the marching Jayhawk song. That was it, so that means we are going to be talking some college basketball, of course, out here at the Barstool Sportsbook. And a quick reminder here that there's no better place than Barstool Sportsbook inside Hollywood Casino to place your bets featuring 16 betting kiosks, 5 betting windows, and 45 HD TVs for viewing the best games. Before we dive into Kansas and Kansas State, let's give you some scores from around college basketball tonight, some finals from earlier. Number one, Purdue moves to 22-1 and 
on the season after a 20-point win at home in West Lafayette against the Penn State Nittany Lions, 80-60. to Penn State falls to 14-8. and Zach Eady, the frontrunner for National Player of the Year, the 7'4", just titan-like player for Purdue, 7'4", 305. Yeah, try stopping that in March. He is averaging 22.1 points per game and 13 boards. He goes for 18-13 and 13 tonight on just nine shots. So Purdue beats Penn State 80-60 and only one loss on the year. 25th-ranked Auburn wins by 21 over Georgia, 94-73. to The Tigers move to 17-5. Georgia falls to 14-8. The biggest shock in college basketball, maybe of the season, Florida at 13-9 knocks off Tennessee, the second-ranked Vols, 67-54 in Gainesville. So Tennessee falls to 18-4 and on the year. They did not shoot the ball well at all tonight. 27.9% from the floor, 19 of 68. They also shot 20% from deep, 5 of 25. I don't care who you play, that's just not going to get it done, and that did not get it done for the second-ranked Vols in Gainesville as they fall 67-54. to Louisville wins their third game of the year over Georgia Tech, 68-58. to The Cardinals now 3-19 on the year. Georgia Tech falls to 8-14. Pitt completes their sweep of the Carolina Tar Heels with a 65-64 win in Chapel Hill. The Tar Heels fall to 15-7. Pitt moves to 16-7 on the year. And some live games going on right now. Rutgers up by 26 on Minnesota. There's 8-11 to go in the second half. Halftime in Columbia between Missouri and LSU. The Tigers lead by 13. I guess that was kind of misleading. Missouri leads by 13, 48-35. Again, that is at the break in columbia another halftime score between nc state and florida state the wolfpack lead by 22 49 to 27 and another big 12 game going on in fact the only big 12 game going on right now uh, the bedlam series between oklahoma state and oklahoma the cowboys lead at half by 14 and what an oddity that oklahoma has been this year they're 12 and 9 they just beat alabama by 24 led Alabama by 30 at one point in that game on Saturday. Now losing by 14 to Oklahoma State, but also an Oklahoma State team that is no easy out whatsoever. And our good friend Joel Penfield, who was just with us for the hour, is a big Cowboys fan, so certainly pulling for Okie State to pull off uh, that W in Norman tonight. But as promised, let's talk about Kansas and Kansas State, the Jayhawks besting the Wildcats in the Sunflower Showdown last night in Lawrence at Allen Fieldhouse, 90 to 78 it was a much more well-rounded game for Kansas in this go-round than it was in Manhattan and that first go-round it was basically Jalen Wilson doing all the scoring got into foul trouble there were a lot of free throws and that was consistent in this game there were a lot of fouls there were a lot of free throws in fact there was a combined 71 free throws attempted in this game between Kansas State and Kansas but when it was all said and done it was mainly Kansas taking care of business in the first half uh, was close back and forth. K-State had a couple of leads early, early on. But once Kansas got out to about a five- or six-point lead, they were able to take off from there. They got great production off their bench. Bobby Pettiford gives them six on four shots. Joseph Yesfu and Zach Clemens combined for ten points. Ernest Uday Jr. gives them three and six boards. But as for the starting five, you know, Jalen Wilson gives them 28 and four. Dewan Harris ties his career high with 18 points on 12 shots. Grady Dick wasn't great. Uh, did have 
some foul trouble in this game, but did give them nine points and five boards. And K.J. Adams gives them eight and three. He also struggled with some foul trouble. Kevin McCuller, who we kind of skipped over there, he had a double-double despite shooting two of ten from the floor. He had 16 points and 13 boards to go along with four assists in that one. As for Kansas State, they were led in scoring by surprise, surprise, Marquise Noel and Keontae Johnson. Noel gives the Cats 23 points, three boards, four assists, but did have five turnovers. Keontae Johnson had 22 points and 12 boards on seven of 19 shooting. After that, uh, K-State just couldn't get much. They get 11 points from Naquan Tomlin, eight boards there. David Gasson, who was just in his second game coming off injury, he gives the Cats 10 points and six boards. Cam Carter gets three points on just four attempts from the floor. Desi Sills off the bench, who had 24 in that matchup at Bramlage Coliseum. He only gives the Cats seven off the bench. And Ishmael Masood gives K-State two points. For the rest of the Cats, uh, they did not give them anything in terms of offensive production. But the overall takeaways on this game. I don't think anybody really believed that K-State was going to go in and and thump Kansas. Right? They might have been able to pull off the upset, but they hadn't done so since 2006. It's now 17 straight wins for Kansas against Kansas State at Allen Fieldhouse. But you just felt like Kansas was going to play a lot differently in this go-round. Not have to deal with a hostile crowd going against them. They would be fired up for this game, the crowd, the coaching staff, and the players to beat this Kansas State team and to beat them in the way of being more well-rounded. And what I mean by that is is with the scoring. You know, in the three-game losing streak that Kansas had, Jalen Wilson went nuclear. Uh, Jalen Wilson could not miss. Nearly gave them 40-plus points against Kansas State if it wasn't for a late timeout by Bill Self that nullified a three-point make in overtime. Uh, He would have been the talk of college basketball for the entire week. But he scored a lot in that game. He scored a lot against TCU in a game they got thumped at Allen Fieldhouse, and he scored a lot against Baylor. What did that result in? Three consecutive losses for Kansas. Now, you're not going to blame Jalen Wilson for that, but you're going to look at this offense and go, they're not going to win many games. They're not going to go far in March if it's Jalen Wilson dribbling the ball, going at the bucket, taking all the shots, and everybody else is just standing around and watching. We saw last night the starting five get back to their balanced approach. If Dewan Harris has given you 18 points, Kansas is going to go very far. Kansas is going to return to the Final Four if they can get every other game 18 points from Dewan Harris, if they can get 16 and 13 from Kevin McCuller. Now, even on nights where Grady Dick and K.J. Adams aren't big offensive producers, you get that, you're going to beat some good teams. And that's also something that needs to be factored in if you're a Kansas fan. You may have looked at that game and said, well, you should beat Kansas, Kansas State. You should be able to handle Kansas State at Allen Fieldhouse. Here's the thing. Kansas State was very good on the road in conference play, early on at least. You know, knocking off Texas right now, the top team in the Big 12 in Austin, putting up 116 in regulation against the Longhorns. They also beat Baylor, who beat Kansas in Waco. The Cats go into Waco and win in an overtime thriller. And they also hang in there and nearly knock off Iowa State down to the wire. They do get beat by TCU pretty badly, but they've gotten a lot of their tough games out of the way. In games, they were not favored. And that's what I was interested for last night, that Kansas State was going into the game as a near 10-point underdog. How were they going to play with it? And we had seen this year that when they were an underdog, they had played very well. Underdog against Texas, underdog against Iowa State, underdog against Baylor. They had played very well in all three of those games. I expected them to play well last night, but it just wasn't the case defensively. 
and there was a lot of fouls in the game. You can complain about that. You can say it was the Allen Fieldhouse whistle, but K-State shot more free throws than Kansas. They had more fouls than Kansas, and it was it was pretty even in that matter. It was boring to watch them all shoot free throws. Nobody wants to see that in college basketball, but you understand that with John Higgins' crew, there's going to be a lot of free throws. <laughs> That's just the way of college basketball now is that in a physical game, a rivalry game, it's not going to be a case where they let the players play. It's usually going to be those players going to the free throw line and shooting a hell of a lot of free throws. And I think that stands true. When you look at Kevin McCuller's stat line, he was 2 of 10 and had 16 points. He made two shots from the floor and got 16 points. He made 10 free throws. That's just ridiculous. Now Marquise Noel had five shots and 22 points, made five shots and had 23 points. A lot of that came from the free throw line. Desi Sills didn't make a shot. And he had seven points. That's just what college basketball is right now. And last night, if you want to blame it on that, if you want to say, well, Kansas State got snubbed by officials, okay, well, we can go in circles with that. But the fact of the matter is, is that as this season goes on in the Big 12, everybody's going to go through their struggles. Everybody's going to have their problems. And you're going to have nights where you're just off. And last night, I didn't think Kansas State shot the ball very well. I think they were 7 of 22 around the rim. That's not going to beat anybody, and that's certainly not going to beat a Kansas team in Allen Fieldhouse. Uh, you're not going to be able to give up 90 points on the road and expect to win. Uh, that has happened very few times this year. It did happen in their game against Baylor. It did happen in their game against Texas, but those two places are still not Allen Fieldhouse. You're not going to be able to win on the road uh, playing as poorly as you did offensively, turning the ball over, uh, not shooting the ball very well, and allowing big spurts to Kansas. What I was impressed of, of Jerome Tang's squad, was that they went into that game with certainly an identity, a message, and he tried to fire up his team with a technical foul, but they never really got completely knocked out. They always sort of hung around, especially in the second half. There were times Kansas led by 15, they led by 17, and you thought, well, in some years, Kansas State would have just completely crumbled, just threw in the towel, folded, lost by 25 or 30. It happened last year. You know, that was a not a very good Kansas State team, but they were one that folded under Bruce Weber. They didn't really fold last night. They sort of hung around for the majority of the game. Now, they lose by 12 points. They don't cover in that game. But you still felt like they were about two or three, maybe four big buckets away from really making it interesting. And I know it sounds sort of stupid to say it's a moral victory talk, and we're not in the moral victory business here. But I do think there were some positives you could take away if you're Kansas State and also some reasons to truly be concerned. I think Kansas State has a big problem with their front court. I don't think it's a front court that could hang against a very physical front court in the NCAA tournament. I don't think it's a front court that could hang in very well when they face a very big center in the tournament. And that could happen, uh, depending if Kansas State's a 3, 4, maybe a 5 seed, hell, maybe a 2 seed. But if they run into one of those physical centers, I worry about this Kansas State team. I'm not worried about Keontae Johnson putting up 23, 24 points in a tournament game. I'm not worried about Marquise Noel giving you 25 Eight and five. I'm just, I, he's going to usually give you that. He's that good of a true point guard. But to rely on your front court to give you something, anything, it, it's got to come from somewhere. Whether that's Bebe Igiola, whether that's Ish Masood, whether that's David Gasson, whether that's Naquan Tomlin. And last night, yeah, you saw double digit numbers from Tomlin and David Gasson, but you also see them be a, a big problem for Kansas State. They were not good defending around the rim. They had a couple of turnovers. They weren't good at finishing around the rim. They're very raw. Naquan Tomlin didn't play high school basketball. David Gasson's been hurt. They have a chance to get much, much better, and you're always going to have that consistency of Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel, which keeps you in games. I mean, I, I was there in person last night. Keontae Johnson looks like a pro prospect. 
He's just a bull. Uh, he can bully anybody. Kevin McCullough is one of the best defenders in college basketball, and he worked Kevin McCullough last night. You know, Marquise Noel is probably the best pure scoring point guard in the Big 12, I would say. And for his size, that's pretty remarkable. And, you know, there's going to be times where Marquise Noel or Keontae Johnson don't have the best of games. You know, they're held to four or five points. You know, I think much more Marquise Noel, who's already done that. Kansas held him to four points in the matchup in Manhattan, but Keontae Johnson went for 26 or 28. You know, Johnson's bad games are usually about 10 or 12 points. So my curiosity with this Kansas State team really lies with their front court. And also I wonder, uh, when is that rough stretch coming for Kansas State? I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think every Big 12 team is going to go through a rough stretch. And we've seen some of the best teams already go through that rough stretch. The only two to avoid the rough stretch has been Kansas State and Texas. Texas is 7-2. and two. They lost to Kansas State in their very first conference game. They lost to Iowa State, so they've lost to two teams that are 6-3 and three in conference play. Iowa State's gone through a rough patch. You know, they just recently lost to Texas Tech, who was 0-8 in the conference. They lost to West Virginia. And that's a rough stretch. Kansas and Baylor have both lost, both, both lost excuse me, three in a row. You know, Oklahoma's had their struggles. West Virginia's had their struggles. Tech's had their struggles. Oklahoma State's had their struggles. TCU's had their struggles. You just never know when it's coming. And if it comes near the end of the season in February, that's the worst possible time that it could come. Uh, Baylor really had the best possible time to have their bad stretch. You know, they were a team that lost their first three conference games. Now, it slowed them up a bit. It's a reason right now they're at the middle of the pack or they're in the middle of the pack of second place and not first. But it's better to have it then in January, early January, that is, and not at the end of February. And Kansas State does have a very tough test over their next five or six games. You know, you get Texas on Saturday, the number one team in the Big 12, and a team that's looking to avenge the loss that they were humiliated in at the Moody Center in Austin. They gave up 116 in regulation. A very good defensive Texas team gave up 116 in regulation. Then you get TCU at home. Then you go on the road to Lubbock and Norman, Oklahoma. And two teams that are not the top half of the Big 12, but a Texas Tech team that just knocked off Iowa State, overcame a 23-point deficit, I might add, and knocked off Iowa State. And Oklahoma, who was 30-balling the second-ranked team in the country. I mean, they're not the toughest teams in the conference, but they're teams you can't overlook. And that's where it concerns me that if Kansas State can't get something going from their front court here over the next five or six, I worry about their ceiling going into March. But the positives from last night, I think, can be that you avoided the knockout punch. You really avoided the knockout punch in an environment that was the loudest it had been all season long. You can miss me with that Kansas fans don't care about Kansas State. I'm a Kansas guy. It's a rivalry. It's a big-time rivalry, and it especially is one now in college basketball with the series split 1-1 or the season series split 1-1. Jerome Tang has given K-State fans a reason to care about Kansas State basketball again. He's got a very confident and competitive group. And last night, though they lost by 12 and were controlled for the majority of that game, they hung around. Uh, they didn't get knocked out like a lot of teams do at Allen Fieldhouse. There's teams that can hang around in the first half, and then when they start giving up a run and the crowd get it, gets into it, that lead or that deficit can balloon from 10 to 15 to 20 to 25. It happens. We've seen good teams just get hammered by Kansas at home over the course of the last 20, 25 years. But Kansas State, in a year they were projected to finish dead last in the conference, haven't really been smacked around. 
Uh, you know, they lost to Butler early on this year. It's not a very good Butler team, but it was their first true road test. And they lost to TCU by 14, but it's not a true blowout. I think Kansas, uh, they were looking like they could have blown out Kansas State, but it's a 12-point loss for Kansas State. So you hung in that game. You were probably three or four big shots away from really making it interesting in the late in the second half, and maybe I'm just being too positive here. Maybe I'm being too positive on a Kansas State team that lost to their rival and lost to their rival for the 17th consecutive time at Allen Fieldus. Eventually, you got to get one of those. you got to find a way to sweep Kansas if you are going to win the conference outright or maybe even split the conference. My biggest concern for this team, though, of course, is just the front court. Is that front court really going to find that comfortability? You know, find their zone. Find that focus where you know you can consistently get great production around the rim every single night. You know, 11 points is fine. You'll take 11 points from Naquan Tomlin. You'll take 10 from David Gasson. But they can be hollow points at times when you can't defend around the rim. You have three or four turnovers. You're not rebounding the ball. That all factors in. Right? There were times last year with David McCormick in Kansas where he gave you 12 or 13 but he had three rebounds. That's not being a true big man, and that was a concern for Kansas going into the tournament. Could they beat a team that was more physical than them in the post, had a better rim protector? And that certainly crossed everybody's mind against Creighton, you know, maybe against Providence, maybe against a team like Carolina who had Baycott, but Kansas overcame it. I think Kansas State is more than capable of overcoming it with Jerome Tang. It just concerns me because now we're 22 games in, and it still has kind of been a two-man show up there in Manhattan with Jerome, with or a three-man team, I guess you could say, with Jerome Tang, Keontae Johnson, and Marquise Noel. It's been those three just controlling and dominating the show. But eventually you're going to need to win some games with your postmen, and you're going to need to do so on the road against Texas Tech, against Oklahoma, against Oklahoma State. Those wannabe gimme games, I know it's not even really a phrase, but you want those to be easy games. You want those to be the the – restful, no-stress type of games when you're playing teams at the bottom of your conference. But Tech proved last night. They're 0-8. They could beat Iowa State, who was near the top of the Big 12. There is no easy out. And Kansas State, Kansas for that matter, Texas, Iowa State, all those top teams, Baylor, TCU, they've all got a gauntlet of a schedule for the rest of the regular season. You don't even need to say it's going to ease up because the Big 12 is that damn good. There is no easy game for anybody for the rest of the year. Not in the Big 12 play, not in the conference tournament, not in the NCAA tournament, if they're going to get there. And, of course, Kansas and Kansas State expect to be there and expect to be top four seeds in the NCAA tournament. All right, we'll take our first break of the final hour. When we come back, we will give you some more scores from around the NBA and the NHL and talk some Royals baseball. We've held it off for this long. Zach Granke is back. That rotation is coming into full effect. We'll break down that roster a little bit and what we can expect Heading into spring training, the pitchers and catchers will report here in a couple of weeks. Spring training will be later on this month, I believe, at least the first couple games at the end of February. So we'll talk some baseball here coming up next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Wrapping up our third and final hour here at the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino and KCK. It's the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson. Dylan Michaels back in the studio running 
all the good stuff back there, commercials, good bumper music, and chiming in from time to time. We gave you our full Chiefs rundown in the first two hours of the show, and then just recently talked some college basketball, KU and K-State, what's next for both of those teams. But we have dedicated the final 30-ish minutes to some Major League Baseball talk, but also give you some scores from around the league because if you're out here at Barstool Sportsbook or you're wanting to come to the Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino, so many games going on. NBA, NHL, college basketball. We gave you some scores around college basketball before our KUK State segment. So before our Major League Baseball segment, let's give you some scores from the NBA, some finals from earlier, and the games that are going on right now. The Sixers moved to 33-17 and after an 11-point win over the Orlando Magic, 105-94. to The Magic fall to 20-32 and on the year. The leading scorers in that game, Joel Embiid, the former Kansas Jayhawk, gives the Sixers 28 points on 17 shots, also gives them 11 boards. Markel Fultz, the former number one overall pick of the Philadelphia 76ers, gives the Magic 18 points on 11 shots. Wendell Carter Jr. leads them with 13 rebounds, four of them being on the offensive glass. The number one overall pick of the Magic, Paolo Banquero, uh, or the Magic's first overall pick, uh, Paolo Banquero, gave them 13 points, nine boards, and three assists. So Sixers moved to 33-17 and 17 with that win over Orlando. The Trailblazers moved to one game under 500 after a win in Memphis against the Grizz, 122 to 112, Damian Lillard with a whopping 42 points on 11 of 22 shooting. He was also 15 of 16 from the free throw line. Ja Morant gives the Grizz 32 points on 8 of 16 shooting. He was 3 of 7 from deep and 13 of 18 from the foul line. Also, Anthony Simmons gave the Trailblazers 26, 2, and 4. Uh, Jeremy Grant gave them 18 points and three boards off the bench. They got 11 points and 11 boards from Drew Eubanks. So Portland with that 10-point win over the Grizzlies. Jaron Jackson gave Memphis 18 points. Desmond Bain, the former TCU Horn Frog, gave them 17 and three assists off the bench. They got eight points from Brandon Clark. So Memphis falls to 32-19, and 19, Trailblazers at 25-26. and 26. The game I was watching here at Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK was the Boston Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets. He did a lot of star power in that game. Well, it wasn't a very entertaining game to watch at that as the Celtics win 139-96. to 96. They move to 37-15 and 15 on the year. The Nets fall to 31-20. and 20. In this game, Jason Tatum gave Boston 31 points, 9 boards, and 4 assists on 12-19 shooting. Jalen Brown gave Boston 26-3-3. Robert Williams gave them 16-9. They also got 14-10 from Derek White. And also Al Horford gave them 9-5-3 off the bench. Uh, Cornette gave them 12 points, 4 boards, and 4 assists. Malcolm Brogdon gave them 10-2-4. And also they got eight points from Sam Hauser off the bench. So Boston puts up 139 on Brooklyn at the Garden tonight. Kyrie Irving gives the Nets 20 points. Uh, Joe Harris with 12. Seth Curry with seven off the bench. They got 19 from Cam Thomas, but not much to yell home about for the Brooklyn Nets 
following a 43-point drubbing at the hands of Boston. The Sacramento Kings beat the Spurs 119-109. Their extraordinary season continues as they move to 28-21. The Spurs fall to 14-37. and It wasn't long ago that the San Antonio Spurs were the top dogs in the Western Conference. Far from that now with just 14 wins and 51 tries this year. As for the Kings... DeBontis Sabonis gives them 34 points on 15 of 20 from the four. Also 11 rebounds to go along with that. De'Aaron Fox, 31 points and 10 assists. Harrison Barnes, the former North Carolina Tar Heel, with plus 20 in the plus-minus category, the highest of any king on the floor tonight, gave them 14, 6, 1 assist and 1 steal. They also got 22 points off the bench from Malik Monk. Uh, plus nine in the plus-minus category there, five assists and three steals to go along with that stat line. As for the Spurs, nothing really that impressive, not from their starting five, not from their bench. Jacob Podol gave the Spurs 18. They also got 18 from Keldon Johnson, 22 points from Malachi Branham, but the Spurs were no match at home for the Sacramento Kings. As for the games going on right now, a thriller coming down to the wire here that I'm watching on the big screen out in the main area of Hollywood Sportsbook, or uh, Boston Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino. The Timberwolves and the Warriors knotted up at 110 with 4.59 to go in the fourth quarter. In that game, Steph Curry for the Warriors has 29 points on 8 of 18 shooting. Jordan Poole with 16. Clay Thompson with 14. Andrew Wiggins with 14. Draymond Green and Kevon Looney with 10 points apiece. As for the Timberwolves, they got 29 points from D'Angelo Russell, 23 from Anthony Edwards. Nas Reed has 22 points and 11 boards for the Timberwolves. So see how that game finishes up here. I believe it's actually going to go into overtime here. So the 459 was for overtime, not for the end of the fourth quarter. That was a screw-up on my Yahoo Sports app as I couldn't get a good look of the time. Uh, left there on the big TV. But Warriors and Timberwolves heading to overtime. Be sure to catch that over on ESPN. The Raptors lead the Jazz 73-71, 8 left to go in the third quarter. As for the high scores in that game, Fred Van Vliet, the former Shocker of Wichita State, has 19 points, 8 boards, and 6 assists. Pascal Siakam with 15 points on 16 shots. Gary Trent Jr., with 10 points, 2 boards, and 2 assists in that one. As for the Jazz, Mike Conley with 12 points. Jordan Clarkson with 11. Lowry, or Louis Marketing, excuse me, has 11 points and 8 boards. Walker Kessler, the rookie out of Auburn, with 10 points and 8 boards. And Kelly Olenek with 2 points and 4 boards. Off the bench, Malik Beasley has 14 points for the Jazz. That is all the games going on right now in the NBA. Actually, one more. The Suns and the Hawks have just begun. They were in the first quarter, 23-19 lead for the Hawks in Phoenix. So that is all the NBA scores going on right now. Some finals from earlier, and, of course, the ones going on right now. As for the NHL, the Hurricanes beat the Sabres tonight 5-1. to They moved to 34-9-8 on the year. The Sabres moved or fall to 26-20-4. The Bruins beat the Maple Leafs 5-2. They moved to a whopping 39-7-5. Maple Leafs fall to 31-13-8. Those are your scores around the leagues. We may revisit that before the end of the show, but right now let's get into some Major League Baseball talk, and specifically with the Kansas City Royals, who brought back Zach Greinke on a one-year deal. At least it's not official yet, but multiple reports had confirmed that Zach Greinke is heading back to Kansas City, which has all but solidified their rotation moving into spring training with the assumption that Brady Singer will grab one of those spots, Zach Greinke will have one of those spots, Jordan Lyles, likely Daniel Lynch in that fifth spot, 
maybe up for grabs between Ryan Yarborough, Chris Bubich, John Heasley, Carlos Hernandez, Max Castillo, a lot of different guys for that fifth spot. But at least for four of the five spots, they're pretty much safe at this point with two of the younger arms and Singer and Lynch and two of the veteran arms that you brought through free agency in Granke and Lyles. So, Dylan, it's been a while since I have brought you in here and Mainly it's because I'm just needing somebody to bounce back and forth with right now. And I know it's not really Chiefs talk and the, the main stories circulating around Kansas City, but always uh, okay to dive into a little bit of Royals baseball, especially with pitchers and catchers reporting here in a couple of weeks. But Zach Granke, of course, a Royals legend, uh, much more on his first stint in Kansas City than the stint that started last year when the Royals brought him back at a one-year $13 million deal. But do you like a move like this to bring back a veteran presence that solidifies the rotation gives you more stability, more consistency, but he is a guy that's going to be 39-40 this year. Uh, he is not going to be a guy that's going to log you 150, 160 innings. You pretty much know what you're going to get from Zach Greinke, but do you like this move? Are you indifferent on this move? Uh, do you not like it at all? Where do you stand on the Royals bringing back uh, Zach Greinke? Well, I mean, uh, the, one of the first pictures you see here on Google is him wearing some pit vipers on the bench in spring training, which is just... oh yeah. Basically going to parlay into my answer here, which I love this move because it almost guarantees that you will be entertained this year by Royals baseball regardless of the product on the field because you have Zach Granke, the most entertaining and interesting man in baseball. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that's very soft-spoken. Uh, he's a man of few words. He has always been that way. But those he words is never going to change his ways. Yeah. I mean, I remember there was a couple times this season I was down in the clubhouse after games and after games in which Zach pitched. Uh, he really did not have much to say, whether he gave up one run over six innings or he gave up six runs over three innings. You know, he was going to say pretty much the same thing over and over again, and that's just who he is. Uh, he may not be that comfortable around the media, or he just likes to have strange or odd answers around the media. But I think everybody loves Zach Granke, which is why I think most people were on board with this move. But if you are the Royals and you're going into a year like this, where you're wanting to, of course, give your chance the best team to win, but also understand you need innings from young guys, you need at-bats from young guys, you don't want older guys taking those spots. But I always feel like in the starting rotation, it's a little bit different. It is a little bit different of a story when you sign a veteran, a seasoned veteran, an older guy for the rotation. You know, when you go out there and you get a Zach Granke, you go out there and you get a Jordan Lyles, you're looking at a guy that isn't going to wow anybody. He's not going to give you 200 innings, 230 innings. He's not going to have an ERA sub three. He's not going to strike out over 200 guys. But he can give you some balance, and he can allow you to be flexible with the other guys in your rotation. He, you can have a guy like a Daniel Lynch. You can have a guy like a Brady Singer in the rotation and not expect them to be the workhorses. Right, And not that Zach Granke or Jordan Lowes are going to be a workhorse, but you're not having guys like Chris Bubich. You're not having guys like John Heasley out there that are going to be incredibly difficult to get them those innings, to trust those guys to give you five, six, or seven innings. Because those guys, for the most part of last year, you didn't know what you were going to get from them. And I think early on last year, in April, the reason the Royals got off to such a slow start is because you didn't have these guys that could go five or six innings. Zach Granke could. Brady Singer wasn't even in the rotation last year. No, Zach Granke was a guy you could count on early on. Brad Keller you could count on early on. After that, it was pretty much a mystery. Uh, you didn't know if Chris Bubich was going to give you much. Uh, he could make it three, maybe four innings on his worst days. He couldn't make it out of the first inning. Carlos Hernandez couldn't throw a strike to save his life. And the Royals were trying to give the young guys the innings last year 
But when they have so much unknown about them, the lack of consistency, you can't trust those guys to pitch a full 162-game schedule. You need the guys like a Granky. You need the guys like the Lyles who can eat the innings at time. They can wear it. Because we saw last year a lot of those young arms wore down in August and September because they had to log so many innings. They had to wear it a lot of the times because there were so many in that rotation or guys that were making spot starts that couldn't make it deep into the game. There were really good relievers in that bullpen, i.e. Scott Barlow, i.e. Josh Stallmont, Dylan Coleman, that went through really rough stretches. Hell, Taylor Clark's another one of them. Amir Garrett's another one of them. They went through rough stretches because they were so fatigued, they were so taxed because they were asking to come in the game or they were asked to come into the game by the fourth or fifth inning. And also it's a different managerial approach, I think, this year. You know, Mike Matheny last year and the year before that wanted to manage this team like it was Game 7 of the World Series. You know, he wanted to win every single game. And on the surface, that sounds great. That's all fine and dandy, that you want to win every single game. But if you're trying to win every single game like there's no tomorrow, you're going to wear down by the end of the weekend. You know, you have a, a seven-game homestand that starts on a Monday. You put all your effort onto winning on Monday night. It hurts you on Wednesday and Thursday because your starters can't go deep in the game. You can rely on Brady Singer to give you a good start. Well, what about the next night? when Chris Bubich is out there and he gives you two. Then you got to go to a long reliever. you got to go to Max Castillo or Carlos Hernandez, and he gets roughed up a bit. Then you got to go to Amir Garrett in the fifth, then Taylor Clark in the sixth, and then you got to swing it over to Colin Snyder in the seventh, and then Josh Stallman. He gets knocked around for two innings. It, that's how you can burn out your team, which is what happened to the Royals. When you have so many young guys that haven't pitched a lot in their major league career, they don't have a 200-inning season. They've never spent an entire year up at the big league level. It shows. Uh, they're going to wear down. We even saw it on the offensive side of things, that these young hitters, once they got about 130, 135 games in, they were going through some massive slumps. They were going through years in which, or series in which they were 1 for 12 or 2 for 18. They were going through those stretches because they were so exhausted. They were so tired. And so back to the point at hand, when you bring back an aged and seasoned veteran, you know what you're going to get from Zach Greinke. Now, you could go out to the ballpark, you could go out to an average day Kauffman Stadium, and Zach Greinke's likely going to give you four or five innings. No, it's not great. You want to hopefully he gets you at least five or six. But he's not getting yanked in the first or second. That was always a possibility with Chris Bubich, John Heasley, Carlos Hernandez, Max Castillo, hell, even Daniel Lynch at times. Jackson Coar is another one of them. You just never knew what you were going to get from them. So I think J.J. Picole's approach this time around, his game plan is, hey, for this team to be interesting, for this team to show signs of growth, it starts in April. you got to be hot in April. We saw in 2021 this Royals team start hot. Excuse me. They were 16-8, and I believe, or 16-9, and had the best record hanging into May 1st. Then they bottomed out, you know, I think, the reality kind of caught up to them. You can't have a negative run differential and expect to be a really good baseball team. And the Royals were uh, barely beating teams, but when they lost, they were getting hammered. But a hot start in April can do wonders for a young team. And I think the way they can get that hot start in April is knowing that they've got some foundational pieces in Granky and Lyles for 2022, or 2023 at least. You can trust those guys. They're going to be in the rotation. You pretty much know what they're going to give you. There's not uncertainty there. No, they're not going to be aces. No, they're not going to be number ones of your staff. You're hoping Brady Singer can become that guy. But for Brady Singer to become that guy, he needs the help for the number two and the number three guys. 
Brady Singer can't do what he does if he's got no help behind him. If he has the pressure every single time out that he's got to go seven. You want your number one to be able to go seven, to be able to go eight, or throw a complete game shutout, but you want him to just give you six. Qualify for the win. Pitch well enough to give your team a chance. That's what you should ask for a number one, and especially a young number one, which is what Brady Singer is. So now you're number two and you're number three. Unlike last year where it was Brad Keller and Chris Bubich, it's Granke and Lyles. That's not a great group, but it's better than it was last year. And it gives your young rotation a chance to at least improve. And that's the message, I think, for 2023, or should be the message. And I'm sure that Matt Quattraro and and Brian Sweeney and Zach Bovey and J.J. McCole, all of them, have talked about what they want out of this team, how they want this team to improve. It's not going to show up in the standings. The Royals aren't going to go out there and win 88, 90 games. My guess is they'll be around 70 to 75. Hopefully a much more fun team than last year's was because you'll have all these young guys playing. You'll have an everyday lineup, an opening day lineup of pretty much eight or nine rookies or second-year guys. I think every Royals fan would enjoy that, but you're also going to go through some growing pains. But with those growing pains, you want to see the signs of improvement. You want to see these guys take this next step forward. You want to see them make that leap. And at times, that leap comes from having stability elsewhere. The Royals have not had much stability over the last two years. You know, you could say Andrew Benintendi and Whit Merrifield were stabilizers in that lineup. But there weren't a ton of young hitters in that lineup last year. You, know, you had Bobby Witt Jr., but Michael A. Taylor was in center field. You know, you had a, a revolving door in right field. You had Nicky Lopez out there. You know, at first base, you had Carlos Santana. You had Salvador Perez catching. And as the season wore on, you saw those young guys start coming up to the big leagues. You saw MJ Melendez. You saw Vinny Pasquantino, Nick Prado, Michael Massey, Drew Waters, Nate Eaton. You saw those guys come up, and what they need is to have those stabilizers, you know, kind of, I think, on the pitching side of things. When you're a young hitter in baseball, and I'm not a major league hitter, I'm not a guy that has had any experience professionally with baseball. I played it in high school. That has nothing to do with, with knowing the game that well. But what I would say is that if you're a young offense, if you're a young offensive unit, you want to not have the pressure of, man, we got to go out and get six or seven runs because this rotation ain't going to give us anything. You know, Carlos Hernandez is on the bump. we got to get seven or eight if we expect to win this game. You know, if Zach Greinke's on the bump, all you really need is maybe four or five, and you can start there. It's baby steps. Is those little things there. The tiny things there, that's how you can improve this team. And when you're trying to improve a team that's kind of starting from the bottom here, I mean, let's be honest, you have all these rookies on the field, these second-year guys, these third-year guys, you're starting from the bottom. And you have to piece it together with some stability. I think it starts with the starting pitching because that was a big problem last year. And also another glaring thing the Royals have done this offseason of the pitchers they've signed, at least to the rotation, you get Zach Greinke and Lyles and Ryan Yarbrough is maybe going to compete for that fifth spot. All three of those guys throw a lot of strikes. What was one issue they really struggled in last year? It was throwing strikes. When you're out there and you're in the fourth inning, you're at 80, 85 pitches because you've walked three or four, that's going to hurt you. It's going to tax the bullpen. And like we said earlier, with a seven-game homestand, you'll be cooked by day three or four. You'll be throwing your piamps of the world out there to close out games. We throw in Amir Garrett out there way too early. You know, I think the Royals want to have more of a, a structure with how they handle things with their rotation and their bullpen. Whereas Mike Matheny managed every single game like it was Game 7 of the World Series, I think Matt Quartrero will take more of a conservative approach. 
You know, you fall out of things five to nothing. Yeah, you may still have a chance to win that game, but maybe get some work in. He's got more of an analytical approach, a data-driven mind. So does Brian Sweeney. So does Zach Bovey. So does this heading staff, for that matter, with Alex Zumwalt. Now you lose Mike Tosar, but you keep Keone Duren. You have a good coaching staff to work with in Kansas City, and I think a front office that supports this coaching staff and wants to give them the best possible chance to improve this team, not to make them a winner, not to make them win the Central. I know everybody's going to be frustrated with that. But at the end of the day, the Royals can't skip steps. That's how I think I would categorize or summarize this team and where they're at. You can't go from point A to point D. You have to go through growing pains. You have to get high draft picks, not through tanking, but just you understand where the developmental process happens in baseball. It's why the Baltimore Orioles had a winning record last year. They had a couple of seasons where – they lost a lot of games, but got talent, developed that talent, and now they're in a much better spot. Well, the Royals, they've kind of been hobbling back and forth between wanting to be competitive, wanting to rebuild, and that's hurt them now in year five or six of the rebuild. But now there seems to be a sense of direction. I kind of can get a clear image as to what the Royals are trying to do in 2023. They want it to be the young guys year, where all year long, Last year, the year before that, we said, oh, this is 2013. This is the 2013 Royals. That means next year they're going to go to the World Series. No, it's not anything like that. You have to start at 2010, 2011. Piece together some of your young guys that will turn into the veteran guys next time around. You know, right now I think the Royals are probably closer to a 2010-2011 group, a hybrid of that. The year after that, most of your young guys are up there. Maybe they're closer to 2012. But then 2013, when you go out there and get you your James Shields, you get you your Wade Davis. You get you your Omar Infante. I know that's not really going to ring true with most Royals fans, but at the time it was a big signing. You go a little bit more all-in than you have this year because the reality is offensively, the Royals need the young guys to get the help. But for these young guys, I think, to improve, they need to know that their rotation is going to have stability and not have a bunch of injury problems and a lot of guys that are getting pulled in the first and second inning. You get Zach Greinke, you get Lyles, you get Yarbrough. They're not going to be big-time inning eaters. They're not going to have over 140, 150 innings. Maybe Lyles does. But at least they're strike throwers. They can stay out there. They can stay healthy. I mean, anything can happen in baseball. But for the most part, it feels like there's a sense of direction. And I think you can get on board that there is a sense of direction for the first time in five years in Kansas City. Now, Dylan, about that sense of direction, do you kind of get what I'm, I'm putting down here is that I can be okay. And it's kind of funny because I just hammered, you know, or I was negative by the Chiefs that if they lose in the Super Bowl, we should be disappointed. So I'm kind of flipping it here for the Royals. But if they lose 90 games, but there at least is a sense of direction, a plan on how to get this team back to the postseason, it's kind of being put in place. I can accept a 90-loss season if you know where you're going. Last year was a very frustrating 65-97 and 97 season because the Royals didn't have a direction. The Royals had no idea what they were doing. They didn't know if they wanted to rebuild or be competitive, and they were in this limbo of that, and they nearly lost 100 games because of it. And they had to fire their coaching staff and make a lot of changes, and they fired their GM. That was a disastrous season because there was no plan. There was no plan to improve this team. Now it kind of feels like there is something being set in place. Do you see that as well from the Royals, or are you in the office here and go, I still think it's the same thing going on that's been going on for the last five years? No, I think it's different. I mean, I remember – listening to Jeff Passan talk on Seren's show one time about how the Rays operate analytically, how they preach in the minor leagues about first pitch strikes and getting ahead of batters. Um, And I I feel like that what you're going to see maybe is not much difference in the roster, but maybe how the players execute. 
hopefully like they i feel like the culture they're trying to set is the same one as the rays where we're just going to keep pumping in and out good teams because we're going to play analytically sound but also we're going to make good decisions and also be aggressive and pitch well like it's it's I feel like there's a good chance that we have a better pitching staff this year. Now, you're right. We're not going to compete, I don't think. I think we'll get third at the best. Like, if we have the best no. season we can possibly have, we might get third this year. Um, but I think we're closer. I think that John Sherman came in here and made a lot of good changes and seems to care, which is what you want from your owner. You want your owner to feel like he's truly invested, like, here – I remember going to a game and we were sitting kind of in the media suites because we had some tickets from 810 and John Sherman was walking around like working during the game. And I was just really impressed by that. I I felt like, you know, this guy's going to do what he can to make this team good because he cares and he's invested and he's got people that are also invested with him that he has to answer to as well. So there's a motivating factor there. And I really do think that you're right. It might not be what fans want that it's not going to be the washington nationals of 20 was that 2019 yeah you're not going to be the last team in baseball and then all of a sudden go win the world series that's juan soto that's having a generational talent which bobby witt could be but i don't think he's there just yet and i think he will grow this season along with the whole team and i'd like to say that this season's kind of like 2012 when like all the kids were coming up they weren't yeah. that good yet, but they were learning. And then you have your year, like 2013, where everyone kind of learns, like, hey, we're, we're a good team when we put it together. And then 14, it mater- materializes. So, yeah, I'm optimistic, but I'm not thinking that we're going to make the playoffs. And that can still be a good season if we show progress, which I believe we will. I, I, I really do the- believe it's different. It is a frustrating thing to hear that when you've been in, you know, five years of a rebuild, you you want to stop hearing, well, you know, this year we're not really going to be competing. You're tired of hearing that. You can see teams out there making some serious moves that want to go out there and compete. But you've also seen teams go out there and make big-time contract agreements and still be bad. And think Detroit Tigers. Angels. They went on there and gave Eduardo Arriga. Angels are another one. Eduardo Arriga's went to the Tigers in a big-time deal. Javi Baez went to the Tigers in a big-time deal. The Tigers were worse than the Royals. They were yep. not a good baseball team. So you could make those boneheaded decisions, misjudge your window, and that hurts you. But the Royals, I think, have just had the problem of, you know, not great in the international scouting department. They haven't drafted really well high up. They don't get value late in the rounds. And that does hurt you down the road because you're not as deep in your farm system. Whereas you look at a team like Baltimore, who now has eight guys in the top 100. And we talked about that last week, or we talked about that two weeks ago with Max Reaper. You want to emulate those teams. You know, with bringing over Matt Quattraro, as you brought up, Dylan, maybe you want to emulate or emulate the, the Tampa Bay Rays. You want to be those teams that don't need high-end talent but can develop guys and can get a bullpen and can have a great defense and get an offense that can sort of sneak up on you, surprise you a bit, and compete against some great teams in the American League because right now I think the American League is about as good as it's been. You yeah. have teams like the Yankees. You have teams like the Astros. And you have teams like the White Sox who even underachieved. But, you know, the Guardians and the White Sox in your own division. That's that's a tough division to compete against. Now, I know it was one of the weaker ones in baseball last year, but the White Sox were banged up, and Cleveland went on to win 90 games. Uh, those are two really good teams you year in, year on have to compete with, and the only way you can get that done is if you start to develop these young guys. And that goes 
without saying. Everybody understands the Royals need a lot of these young prospects to hit and a lot of these young pitching prospects to hit. And I know I'm going on more of a tangent on just signing of Zach Granke, but at least we understand that there is a direction as what they're trying to do. J.J. Bacola didn't go out there and sign Zach Granke, Jordan Lyles, and Ryan Yarbrough and go, all right, that this is our moves, these are our moves to compete at the top of the American League Central. He didn't say that and go, all right, now we are World Series contenders. He said, you know, these are moves that we feel pretty good about. They brought in a role Chapman. They brought they traded Alberto Mondesi for Josh Taylor. They traded away Michael H. Taylor for two young pitching prospects. They're going, you know, restructuring a little bit. We want the young guys to get at bats. We want the rotation to still have our young guys but also have stability, have the veterans in there that can go pitch on the road on a Sunday, a getaway day, and you can trust that they're not going to implode. Last year there were so many implosions from this rotation, mainly because they couldn't throw strikes. And when you can't throw strikes, you can't throw effective strikes, you're going to get hammered in this league. Uh, the league will tell you just how ready you are at the big league level. And a lot, of, a lot of the times for these young arms, they were not ready. They were rushed to the big league level, and maybe that was due to COVID, you know, rushing Brady Singer, and he went through some early struggles. Brady or Chris Bubich, Jackson Coar, Daniel Lynch, maybe they were rushed, maybe they weren't. But now they've got a more competent pitching staff, pitching coaches, pitching coordinators. Let's see what they can do with it. You know, it's not really going to matter who the pitching coach is for Zach Granke or who Jordan Lyles has because the reality is those guys are veteran. They know how to pitch. They know what to do. And they're going to do exactly what has gotten them to a successful point in their career, much more Zach Granke than Jordan Lyles. But I like the move. I like the majority of the moves that the Royals have made this offseason. They've been quiet, but at least they've cleared space in their opening day lineup, the starting nine. We get to see a lot of young guys. And hopefully we see more stability from that rotation and the pitching staff as a whole for the 2023 Kansas City Royals. That'll do it and wrap up another edition of the Night Shift here out at Barstool Sportsbook at Hollywood Casino in KCK. I've been your host, Jack Johnson. Big thanks to our guests of Jordan Foote and Joel Penfield. We'll be back out here next Wednesday at 7 p.m. You take it easy, Kansas City. No!